Slither Hither, weirdos and witches. You're listening to Prad Magic. I am your host, the one who revels way too much in the process of creation, Revelator Keats Rye. This very special mega episode centers around JJ, a talismanic metallurgist, the creator of Rain de Blanc, and the Muse Memorandum. So buckle up. As I previously stated, the episode is of two conversations with the two same people. Yours truly, and my dear, dear friend JJ, whose talismanic works in metallurgy, jewelry making, and costuming has breached the cosmic stratosphere and adorned magicians and artists alike, like Zola Jesus, for instance. The first part of the episode is her joining me on a Pragmagic liminal stream that was streamed a couple years ago on Halloween, but it haunts still. It is timeless. Listeners will not feel the time divide too much. However, the reason why I'm putting it out now is because I've never put it in audio form until it sang to me to conjoin it with me being a guest on her wonderful program called The Muse Memorandum, where she hosts and writes about artists, thinkers, creators, all talismanic living people, such as you and me and everyone in between. And it just made perfect sense in this almost dire birthday week in this haunted February that we exalt those process punks the people that truly care about the process and not so much the result because if you love and are passionate about what you are doing you will love and be passionate about what is birthed like the divergent magic grimoire which i just released as a tool to exalt the process and to love the mundane and the rituals that make up your lore JJ doesn't need a Diversion Magic Grimoire. She is a Diversion Magic Grimoire. It's been a rough couple of weeks, but I'm starting to see the light as Lou Reed sings. Well, I'm beginning to see the light. And I am. And it is with the Divergent Magic Grimoire. And most importantly, it's about haunt manual change. You see, the second part of this episode is JJ graciously hosting me on the Muse Memorandum, of which the subject was a kind of genetic birth of what the haunt manual is and what it has become, which was a living grimoire, a documentation about my process in communing with the specters of self, the past, 
self-specter, the aspect of a self-specter, and the prospector, a prospect of self not yet reached. And as we are buttoning up, I'm driving into the Divergent Magic Remore territory of whatever this next chapter is. As I turn a rotation around the sun again, somehow I'm still kicking, still alive. I am ready and waiting to truly condense the Haunt Manual writings into a published work. I have always intended the Haunt Manual workings, my audiomancy practice and praxis uh, within those Haunt Manual workings of the Spectre, Aspector, and Prospector to culminate into a printed permutation. So a book, a collection of albums, what have you. Moving forward, Pragmagic and Haunt Manual are going to get back to brass tacks and out of your host's ass. It's not going to concern so much of the personal work that I have been doing. Of course, it will always, but Haunt Manual will kind of permeate within the journalistic kind of qualities of my writing, exalting friends and artists and magicians alike, essays, what have you, that don't firmly have the tether of the hauntomancy workings as I have been doing for the past two years. So the next Haunt Manual chapter is the, well, it's the ellipses. So as the hauntology of Haunt Manual changes as I commune with the prospector, the future specter of self, I thought what a grander way than to share my discussion with JJ via her Muse Memorandum channel. Again, please look in the show notes, subscribe on YouTube, check out her blog. She was a perfect animus to discuss its genealogy, its then-current state, and now is a perfect fellow companion and the trans-sublimation of whatever the fuck it is I do next. What you're hearing is, of course, Audiomancy of the new Rebel Raj record, which is also in production. Support me on Patreon at patreon.com slash pragmagic. Go subscribe to Haunt Manual. See how I changed my writing and my journalism back into the fold as I tinker and dally with the first Haunt Manual book. And don't be a stranger. Reach out to me, pragmagic at gmail.com if you'd like to be a part of the Divergent Magic Grimoire community. But first, let's hear from JJ about where to support her work. Hey everyone, it's JJ. I'm just coming on to tell you about an exciting new project that I'm absolutely so thrilled and honored to be a part of called The House of Grey. 
It's a gorgeous online boutique created by my friend, designer Nathaniel Gray. And we are a group of highly specialized independent designers from all over the world, um, from apparel to accessories to jewelry. Uh, I believe we're going to have some lingerie and perhaps some shoes and hats and other items in the future. Right now, there are three of us, and I know that Nathaniel has plans to add other designers as the months go by with new products, new designs. Everything is extremely unique and handmade, couture, you'll never find it anywhere else. So you can be excited to know that you're the only one in the world that has the gorgeous design that you've purchased from the site. So please have a look. The website is thehouseofgray.boutique and we do have an Instagram. The handle will be below in the caption of this post. And I just want to say thank you to everyone for the wonderful, encouraging and supportive words. Uh, we are all very excited about this project. And also, uh, you will still be able to find my designs on my website. I plan to continue on with Renda Blanc brand and also still do custom orders, so please don't worry about that. Uh, but I am going to be housing my more outlandish, uh, big avant-garde pieces on the House of Grey, and I'm absolutely thrilled to be able to do that. So thanks everybody. Have a look at the website and welcome to the House of Grey. Dear friend, metalsmith, magical talismancer, Miss JJ of Rain de Blanc, um, would you consider it? So you said it's ornaments of power. Um, would you consider yourself a jeweler as well, or just metalsmith kind of as an umbrella? Well, thanks for having me on. Yeah. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I do all kinds of work. I prefer to do more talismanic work, um, but I pretty much do everything. If not everything, but people want these like tiny, more co commercial looking things. So I try to accommodate everybody, but always putting my own style into everything. Um, so yeah, I would say I'm a jeweler as well. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, you have crafted one of the best pieces that I think I've ever seen or been a part of uh, with a ring that we did. And I meant to grab it, but maybe I'll do that later to show. But uh, your work is just beautiful. And it has actually been the part of a lot of different artists, ensembles, and different things. And I know that you are an artist first and foremost. Uh, did you start? with like metalsmithing or was that something you came into? Um, like, where did that come from? Well, that's a good question. I, um, well, ever since I was a kid, I was always using all different mediums, um, pastels, paints, anything I could get my hands on. And 
in high school, I started learning photography because uh, my dad was in photography. He was a photographer. He went to FIT. He's also a research scientist, but that was his second love photography. So, and it still is. Um, so I got interested in that and I really loved doing all the manual photography with the dark room and manipulating with chemicals and things like that. So I ended up, uh, that was what I went to art school for photography. And I went to Savannah College of Art and Design. And I was always doing other things at the same time. So I, I was doing beadwork and I was making wood block prints and linoleum block prints and uh, sculptures, all kinds of stuff. Um, but you know, when you go to school and you have your elective classes, my best friend, we actually went to art school together. And she was like, do you want to take a metal smithing class with me? And I was like, yeah, that's so exciting. Let's try it, you know? So instantly it was like, I wanted to drop everything else. <laughs> yeah. I just loved it so much making beautiful things from basically nothing, like flat scraps of things and using the blowtorch, it felt so badass, you know? So that's where I really got into it. But my dad actually introduced me to a little bit of, of jewelry making. He showed me how to make a ring out of a coin. I think when I was about, 16 or 17. So that had my interest sparked there along with the other beadwork and stuff that I was doing. Yeah, I was going to ask, as you mentioned, you know, this love for the analog photography, there seems to be this conduit between the extremes of like science and art and like finding that gentle medium in between. Would you agree that it kind of uses both hemispheres to kind of create something new? Yeah, it really does, because there's a lot of um, chemicals. You know, I, I don't use a lot of chemicals, but, but there are chemicals in the process and uh, heating things to certain temperatures. And that that does factor in quite a bit, depending on how far you take things. So it's definitely kind of a, a meeting of the minds, I would say. Yeah. And like your your process seems to be very charged with like even as you were saying, when you're doing more of the kind of consumer based orders, like people will commission you for something that's, you know, um, maybe not as like intrinsically artistic, but you put your stamp on them. And I was just wondering, like, yeah, where where does that come from? What is what is your stamp? Like, what is this inherent intent that you put in with all your jewelry? or metalsmithing, I should say. I see, I don't want to demean it by just saying jewelry because it's so much more, it really is. I appreciate is. that because there yeah. is a big difference. Yeah. Um, so thank you, because not everyone does what I do. Right. But, um, you know, for me, I would say the way things have evolved for me over the years, because I've been doing this for 30 years now, I'm 49, actually it's longer longer. I learned when I was 18. So um, the way things have evolved for me, it's a lot different from when I was younger, because I've been through a lot of hard stuff in my life. And I've had a lot of physical pain. Um, 
just different ailments and such. So in, I would say the last five or six years, um, the intent has really evolved into something where it's, it's transmuting pain for me, both, you know, psychological and physical. And I don't know, I, I feel like every time I'm setting something on fire, it's burning off these dark negative things that I've been carrying and creating something new and beautiful, or at least I hope it is every time. So that's my first and foremost intent in every piece. And then also I think about the people that have commissioned me to make the pieces and I try to send them as much good energy as I can possibly do. And, you know, if there's a stone or a crystal involved, there's that where I, a lot of people trust me to choose a stone for them. And so I try to really think about everything that's going into the piece to make sure that the wearer is going to have the best possible experience with the piece and also, um, protection and I don't know <laughs> I guess that's that's about it really yeah I, I love that because I know that you've called it ornaments of protection I uh, had the type of labeling this ornaments of power but I, I do feel that there are you know kind of interchangeable in ways yeah power is protection but I love that you come from that as kind of a byline about what you're artistic intent is is like when you're creating something you are thinking about you know the person that's commissioning it you're you know even allowed to choose a stone like uh it, it just makes me think of the alchemical process like as a whole uh, but you're doing it kind of in tandem with your inclinations but also theirs in a very kind of metaphysical way it's some unusual partnership i guess in a yeah way. Yeah, and um, I meant to ask, it's funny, Jeremy from the Alchemical Arts is here, and I meant, he was in my mind uh, thinking about our conversation, because he is in Australia and he creates uh, pigments wow. um, from very, like, you know, old, uh, kind of archaic, grimoire kind of things, you know, I don't, I don't want to displace it, but he had a really good question in here, and um, he wanted to ask what's your favorite metal or metals to work with well most people are so they're kind of snobbish about certain metals but my right. favorite to work with has been brass pretty much um i do work with almost everything but brass is my favorite because it's so you can do so much to manipulate it and I love to manipulate things and give things different textures and finishes. Um, I like to sort of scorch the hell out of things sometimes and make them look really burnt and crispy and then add the contrast of, you know, I'll, I'll kind of sand off some areas so it has those highs and lows. Um, so brass, I would say, and also, you know, brass has copper in it. I love copper as well and bronze. Mm -hmm. um, so I like the flexibility with brass to change its appearance. Cause you can really, it's, it's, you can Very do malleable. quite a bit with it. Yeah. 
Yeah. I, I noticed that you had mentioned on your website too, gold is not something you really work with. What's the reason behind that? <laughs> it's so expensive, really. Yeah, okay. And it requires some other additional equipment and different things. So I am I am going to work with it. And I do have some, I have actually, I can do some castings and that. I don't cast things myself. I make the prototypes and I set it to a caster. They make a mold of it and then they they make it in whatever kind of gold I want. So for now, that will be the process that I do. But down the line, I would like to just hand make things with gold. But yeah. it's the metal prices are just insane these days. So it's not something that I'm going to be doing right now, quite honestly. Okay, yeah. So more from like a pragmatic standpoint. Yeah, or, unfortunately. Yeah. I wanted to ask you too, because you had, you know, when I was working with you about this ring, you had such a um, wonderful, um, how do I put it? Just a, a wonderful observation about each kind of uh, stone and like almost its metaphysical properties. But I was wondering if they were, if that comes from a studious place or is that an intuitive kind of feeling about each kind of, material you're working with like is there a book that influenced you know your understanding of the metaphysical properties of certain stones or gems well i don't know if i could list off one particular book i do have uh one edition i can't remember the name of it right now but it mm -hmm. is a really in-depth book that has some really exotic um, minerals and crystals in there and, and their metaphysical properties. Uh, I've been collecting specimens since I was a kid. Like I don't even remember the first one I had because I always had them and I would always be bothering my parents to take me to the local museum that had a great um, mineral department a rock hound. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and they used yeah. to take me and my brother to different um, mining places like Smoky Mountains and stuff. And we had a Franklin mine near me where I grew up in New Jersey. Um, so I always, I don't even know where I, I don't, I can't say that I have everything memorized, but I do mm. have a background knowledge of a lot of these different rocks and minerals um yeah because it seems very intuitive yeah yeah it seems intuitive for you it seems and as somebody that has been working you know tactically with these things for so long you know i'd almost trust the kind of intuitive nature of that rather than you know reading a book and yeah. te <laughs> telling you you know what the metaphysical properties are i would and say probably like 95 percent of the time that's what i'm doing it's yeah. very rare that I'm consulting, looking something up because I usually look it up because someone asked me if I know a particular stone with a, a certain property that they're looking for. Yeah, I was, you know, and that kind of brings me to my next question, which, you know, to me in the most, you know, made manifest kind of sense, uh, you know, art is magic, like very cut and dry, very simple. And with that, like everyone has their own kind of anarchic ritual to creating or, you know, realizing this magic. And what is what is a day like for you? What is your ritual? And 
you know, going to the shop and like, what does that look like? Coffee. Coffee. <laughs> so yeah. Coffee. Ritual juice. Uh, I would like to say, I mean, I'm a little lax these days on the things that I used to practice quite a bit. Uh, but I, you know, I do like to, I'm not, I am not, I'm not a witch. I'm not practicing any sort of sure arts like that. I have my own things that I do. Um, so I do have some sort of meditative, it's for lack of a better word, things that I do on a normal basis. Although, like I said, it's been, I, you know, since I've been, right. oop, I dropped my, sorry, hold on oh, a second. Oh, you're all good. But I mean, that makes sense. I think one thing that we share between us is, uh, oh wait, it's, it's your headphone. Sorry, I but lost one, it. <laughs> oh, you're all good. One thing that we share between us is kind of this um, vagabond, almost wanderlust rhythm, I think, yeah. we have uh, very much in common. And when it comes to, you know, ritualizing spontaneity, it gets a little hard. Right? Exactly. Like, yeah. So, yeah, what is your current, you know, reality? I know that you just relocated and, yeah, what's, what is your system looking like now? Like, uh, It's much better. It's, I have a shit ton of space, um, mm -hmm. thankfully, which I haven't had in a really long time. And so that's been an adjustment for me, actually, because over these last several years, I've been downsizing and downsizing and downsizing until the point that I didn't own any furniture anymore. Yeah. Um, and so now I'm in this big, tremendous space and I have barely any furniture. Uh, but I always have what I need. And, you know, I have the basics. I've got my studio studio set up pretty well. Um, you know, it'll evolve over time, but I've got my work table now. And mm -hmm. I use such like archaic tools. People, I know there's, I have a lot of friends that are metalsmiths. Well, not a lot, but a, a decent amount. And <laughs> I always laugh when I see their stuff in their studio because I'm basically using like the bare minimum of what you can get by with to make my stuff. And there's something that I just really, love about that like yeah i could get more tools and different equipment and the latest greatest thing but there's something i really love about all the hand tools yeah um sorry i kind of veered off there but no 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 i you are uh, we are on the same wavelength here <laughs> because like I, I i feel that too almost uh the process like uh, i kind of equate it there's a lot of things now in you know ai right right that, kind of cuts out a lot of processes and I just feel especially from you know from an artistic standpoint alone um that it cuts out a lot of the intention and like different processes that I love charging even if it is more work even if it is more time you know and especially as in music uh using you know a shitty old 70s rhythm machine <laughs> that, you know it has a mind of its own or fix it. <laughs> right yeah like and allowing it to kind of age and kind of you know regress itself and warp and then communing with that and i imagine you know the tools that you're using is almost in the same facet right yeah yeah so, so that's like, my reality i yeah 
I am always like just I, I I have to constantly sort of assess my tools to make sure that they're not really falling apart or something like that. <laughs> so occasionally I need to order some new things. Uh, but yeah, I really prefer to use all of the hand tools and the things I've been using for 30 years, basically. People also make fun of me because I don't use the big tanks of gas mm. for the, you know, the propane or, or other gases to use the torch with, which has its, you know, those things, they definitely make things easier and you can have more control with the flame sometimes. But again, <laughs> I'm using like disposable burnt-o-matic propane tanks because they're portable for one thing. I, you mm -hmm. know, I've been moving so much in the last several years uh, that it's not really conducive to lugging around these big dangerous tanks. And yeah. I've been able to pretty much work in my home space for a long time now because I have those portable tanks. So mm -hmm. again, another thing that, you know, it just works for me. So I prefer to use it. Oh, we have a good question from Oswald Spangler, who I'm sure you know. Uh, Oswald asks, what does JJ know about the metaphysics of emeralds? And does she think she could craft an eye of Horus amulet with an emerald? Uh, I have a couple of questions about that, but I'll, I'll, I'll let you uh, navigate that one. Um, I do remember some things about it. I know it's for love and loyalty, things like that. I don't remember everything, quite honestly. I could certainly... Yeah. I probably could. I don't see why not. I mean, I've done all sorts of different concoctions for people, so I certainly could make something. And let's talk about that. So, like, obviously you've been commissioned... Say if somebody wanted to commission you to craft an Eye of Horus amulet, it's interesting to me that the processes of you creating it yourself, them kind of, you know, uh, how do I put it? Um, you know, issuing out to you to kind of figure out so they get is an interesting kind of divot from their practice. Do they do they give a lot of like process? schematics you know like you got to do the lbrp before you craft it you know what i mean like is, has that ever been a thing it's i'm fortunate that i have not encountered that too much there has mm -hmm. been a couple of times um where things have gotten really demanding with what people want yeah uh but i'm pretty mm. I, you know i what's that Oh, I was just gonna say, lay it on me, sister. Give okay. me a give me a nightmare. <laughs> give me a nightmare order. Oh, um, <laughs> I would say probably the. I know there's been a couple recently, but there was one that I will never forget, which was with a prehistoric shark tooth, one of those megalodon or however you say it. Yeah, it was really large, and the client just kept changing what she wanted in the middle of me designing it. And she wanted impossible things. Like, I was like, you don't understand the physics involved of me trying to balance. She wanted these strange attachments and 
it would probably just break off or fall off. And it, so there's a lot of things like that where I have to um, really play around with weight and balance, which is, you know, it's kind of like what you're talking about before with the science of things. Mm -hmm. uh, but as far as maybe someone wanting any metaphysical or, or magic things done beforehand, I haven't really encountered that, I have to say, but I, I definitely have had struggles with clients and what they, like I'll draw something out, which I actually don't normally do. I don't normally sketch anything for anyone or even for myself. I prefer to just start making something and, and perhaps that'll be the prototype and that's the 3D sketch for me because I already have something in my mind and I may not always be able to fully see it myself, but I know it's in there. So I, I just go for it and start fabricating. But I have done sketches for people and they'll be like, oh my God, I love it, it's great. And I start making it and it's really like pretty dead on to what the sketch is. And they're like, oh, it's not really what I thought it was gonna be, blah, blah, blah. So right, yeah, yeah. It's like, oh. Yeah, so what do you do for yourself? I know like as, you know, that kind of confluence of needing to survive, also being an artist, you know, having to get commissioned work and, you know, keep yourself afloat. Like what are some of the experiments or things, you know, you do for yourself as far as, you know, these ornaments of protection? I just always try to keep productive, even if I don't have orders. I mean, that's a big help for me. It, it keeps the creativity flowing. And I've actually really learned to, this is a big thing I wanted to bring up is that yeah, yeah. people focus on perfection so much. Um, and for me, and I'm a Virgo. <laughs> Three, three times for a go. Oh, um, wow. But I do have my Aquarius rising. I. That's right. We're the opposite. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I've actually really come to love imperfection um, and not being holding things so precious and overworking things so much uh, because I feel like a lot of times it's counterproductive and can be very can make things really stagnant yeah so i just keep playing around and playing around and i'll i have thankfully accumulated so many different stones and specimens and different things that there's always something to pull from i always try to challenge myself i remember when i was really really struggling when i i started I decided I was not going to work a job anymore and that I was just going to go full on in with a metalsmithing. Uh, I guess it's been, it'll be seven years in February. And I was so broke that I couldn't even buy metal to do mm -hmm. things. <laughs> but I had a, a shit ton of antique and vintage coins. And I was like, there's metal right there. <laughs> so I carted, I started cutting up the coins into strips and soldering them together to make the bands. And um, suddenly it just, it all opened up for me a whole new vein of work where I could 
take all those pieces and make something really cool with a coin that's been all hacked up or different, you know, a couple coins. And then I started setting stones on the coins, which I think some people are doing it now, but I have scoured the internet and there was no one doing that that I could find. And not that um, it matters all that much, but it was exciting to me that I was doing something that was at least at least new to me and probably new to a lot of people to see. So I love that. Yeah. I, I was just oh let's go ahead, sorry. Oh no, just just to finish the thought, I I like to repurpose things and use whatever's on hand. I'm always challenging myself because if I feel like I got to go buy it or I have to, you know, I'm out of something. If I have something around that will work can make it more interesting, I'd rather do that. And yeah, I was just going to say this flows in perfectly with, you know, um, a part of your bio on the Rain de Blanc site. And you say, my biggest inspirations come from nature and artifacts, drawing from the past to create the future. Now, I don't know if anyone watching knows my obsession with this ontology of the self or, you know, kind of like it, it, that same facet, you know, of um, creating this third mind between the past, the present, and then doing something new. And I love that about you having a tactile representation of it. It's not so much a, you know, inner monologue or, you know, a something in the digital ether. It's that something you can hold that is charged, like something that's very talismanic, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I've always admired just artifacts and ancient things. Um, but I do feel, see, I feel like we are living the past, present, and future all at once. I feel like mm -hmm. all these things exist in once. And so this is a way for me to marry all those together. Because if people have seen my work, uh, at least the things that I choose to do that are not necessarily commissioned, um, so many people tell me that they they're like, oh my God, it looks like it's 500 years old. It looks like it's, you know, thousands of years old because I like to make things look aged, but they, they kind of look like a mishmash of like ancient and future all at once. Right. Yeah. So I really love trying to bring all those elements together. Yeah. And that's that third bind I always talk about, you know, between the two and then creating this new avenue with them. And the facts, you know, like, where does this come from? Where does this love? It's not even a love for the archaic or the ancient or whatever. It's not about aesthetics. There's like something intrinsically really beautiful about what you do in the sense that it is almost a conduit, a conduit, sorry, excuse me. Um, about a kind of presence, right? Between all of those things. Like, wh where does that come from? Is that kind of learned? Is that something that you just inherently have? Uh, <laughs> I think it's maybe just something I already have. I don't know. You know, I, I've always been a dreamer. You know that. I mm -hmm. That's my thing, the dreams. And so 
perhaps I carry these things from another place in time. I really don't know, but it's just something that seems to come naturally somehow for me. Yeah, let's talk about those echoes from dreams. Because yes, I know that you, um, you're you're just so studious about your own dreaming. And I wonder how many of those dreams have kind of informed or even inspired like pieces that you work on. It's not a ton, but I have actually, there's been several times, even with the coin thing that I was talking about before, I actually woke up. Uh, it was like a kind of in-between state where I was mm -hmm. coming back into the waking and I a I liminal space. It was a liminal space. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely was. And I remember that specific time where I just saw kind of a vision or whatever of how I could start cutting apart the coins to make something new with them. So, or I actually have had several dreams. Um, there was one in particular where I feel like I was maybe in Atlantean times or something like that. And there was this really amazing bracelet that was sort of a rounded triangle shape. And it, it was gold and it had these beautiful gemstones set in it. And I've had all kinds of, yeah, I guess I've had quite a few um, like wearable garment jewelry like big draping sort of dresses and things like that uh a lot of things that i do if i haven't done them already i definitely want to do down the line so mm -hmm. those things do come through from dreams for sure now are you a uh, like a very like sturdy dream journalist are are you always kind of making notes yeah, I try to, I mean, there was a time where I was really like, it was religiously every morning I was writing things down. But in the last couple of years, my dreams have kind of, it's got, it kind of bothered me because I was like, oh man, I'm not, I'm not dreaming like I used to, or I didn't have mm -hmm. the recall anymore. Um, but it's, it's back. <laughs> and so yeah. even if I'm not writing in a journal, I'll, you know, do a voice to text into my phone notes or something just so yeah. I can just some of the details that are enough to kind of anchor me there so I can recall the, most of the dream again. But yeah, it's very important to me and it always has been. In this like uh, kind of wanderlust that we share, do you find like in the midst of travel or like, you know, the liminal space between, you know, existing somewhere like in the somatic realm, do you find those are the more heavy dreaming escapades or do you find that once you're kind of set up that you're allowed to kind of in investigate deeper, <laughs> recall better? Oh, I think it used to be that way where I had to be settled. But now because I have been moving around so much, um, especially this year, it doesn't seem to matter. Yeah, <laughs> and, But I do notice that geographically where i am does seem to have a certain mm -hmm. it casts a certain mood on the dreams that is different has different quality for me than other places from place to place i notice a difference yeah yeah i've noticed that as well um where 
where was kind of the most magnanimous kind of time within that you know hypnagogic space what and, and as, as far as like in the relation of where you were at that time um that you think like really peaked like there was a a heat wave of of recall and remembering dream stuff in the last year yeah um man where you're at now probably I wouldn't say so, although I had a lot of dreams about before I started traveling again about Chicago when I hadn't been here since I was a kid um, mm -hmm. and really didn't spend any time here. But as far as where things started to get sharper again, probably while I was staying in Hoboken, New Jersey, when I talked to you last. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and is there like tethers of memory that kind of spiked it or was that your first time there and it just happened to really inflate things no it definitely um i've spent a lot of time in that whole area mm -hmm. i didn't live in hoboken but i worked there and jersey city is right next door and i lived in jersey city for three years and i've spent a lot of time there and Manhattan's right across the river. So, you know, I, I lived and worked in Manhattan for decades. Um, so I think that, you know, and well, and I grew up in New Jersey, but the Northwestern part near Pennsylvania. Right. But I had always been in and out of that whole New York city area since I was a kid. So yeah, I'm sure that it, sort of rekindled some things yeah for me. yeah i wonder that too because i know that when i'm traveling back to like new mexico or arizona the uh the dream like the visitations of dreams get stronger and stranger even though i'm nebulous to like where i've actually been but it's somehow because i'm closer it seems to churn more almost like a magnetic quality to it you know <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. As uh, and like uh you mentioned Chicago, like you spent some time there as a kid, but like yeah, what was it? What was the impetus to kind of ignite you to here? Well, it's interesting cuz the last year, a little over a year, I had been having dreams about the Great Lakes and and Chicago. Um but I realized going back through some of my old dream journals that I was dreaming about it a couple of years ago. And I hadn't even thought, I, I was never interested in living in the Midwest because I always feel like I need to be near an ocean. Right. I always feel like I need to be on the coast. So, um, you know, I had a few really good friends here and I had the opportunity to visit and I was like, oh my gosh, it feels so, feels so good. There's something about it that feels comfortable, even though I had no interest in living in a big city again. Um, and the fact that the lake is so close by and it actually is like an ocean. <laughs> I was so surprised. I was like, oh, my God, it's got like beaches. You cannot see the other side. It's got these big, you know, um, big ships out there. And 
it just felt good to me. And I had the opportunity. It was really, I needed a place to live too. Um, because my whole situation dissolved in Cape Cod pretty rapidly. I was supposed to return in October. And unfortunately, my landlords, they couldn't rent out anymore. They had severe, their married couple, the woman had cancer and crazy operations, and they just couldn't keep up with everything anymore. So uh, I began the hunt. I had planned to spend the summer traveling anyway and i said well, okay well i've got like you know five months to figure it out let me just go visit people and see what's out there and then when i came here things just lined up for me to move into this apartment and it's got everything i need everything's close by i don't drive so right <laughs> it's uh i'm in walking distance to everything i need and I don't go out much, so I'm thrilled to have so much space to myself. Yeah. Because, you know, <laughs> if you're in a tiny space all the time, um, you go a little stir crazy. And I'm used to, you know, when I was in the city, I would I would be going out all the time in New York. Um, that's just the way you, you do when you live there. You walk out and get your groceries or whatever you want to do. But it's um, kind of the only time you get space. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I was living, I was basically, when I was living in Manhattan the last time, it was, I was renting a room in an apartment. And it was originally the living room and it had two Japanese screens dividing. That was it. That had yeah. like no privacy, no sound buffer, nothing. And it was a 10 by 11 room and I was sleeping on my mattress on the floor and metal smithing on the floor next to my bed because I couldn't afford, <laughs> nobody knew it either, except for uh, the woman that I was renting from. Um, I couldn't afford to rent a studio space and, but she was, she's a jeweler too. And she was fine with me using the blowtorch, she's like, just leave the window open, make sure that, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I was going to ask about that, like <laughs> using your metallurgy stuff and, you know, small spaces, I guess it's doable. Right? It is. It is. <laughs> and I did it for 14 months. And so anyway, I think I got off on a tangent there, but. No, no, you, yeah, you're answering completely. I, I, it's interesting to me. I love that you are, you know, kind of drawn to these whims uh, as am I, you know, I'm kind of like given options and I'll take the one, you know, that's a bit more crazy, even though it's probably not smart. I'm talking about my own yes. uh, relation, but like it always is this kind of need to not be stagnant, right? This need to, kind of keep exploring but also that conundrum of needing an office or needing a place of work needing a quiet space you know and yeah. it seems like you have, you have that tether as well and so do you do you look when you think about your life and in all, all your travels and relocations is it like big dots with dashed lines in between or is it kind of like a sinew like a it's the same, you know, thickness. 
in between? Well, I have to say, I mean, I grew up in a really small town and I was fortunate enough to spend my entire childhood in one house. We never moved. I, I grew up there. Um, and the first time I left home was when I was 17 to go to Savannah, Georgia for art school. And I was so, I was excited to get the hell out of there, but also um, I always felt like I needed that core stability of a, a stable, you know, right. home. Or, or something. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know, you know, my life since I became an adult was a young adult. It took a crazy turn and I ended up, um, the first time I moved down to Naples, Florida with an ex-boyfriend and he got a job out in Seattle. And I was like, yeah, sure, let's go, you know. But That's right. You've, I, you've worked here <laughs> for a while. Yeah, and I got there and I was like, holy crap, I made a big mistake. Just <laughs> I felt like I was just, I had always been on the East Coast. Always. Okay. Like, yeah. I, I lived, I always grew up in the, you know, like I said, the same house. Mm -hmm. Um, but we, we would go back and down to Florida and South Carolina to visit relatives and stuff, but I had always stayed on the East coast. So when I got out there, I felt like I landed on the moon. Yeah. <laughs> we pulled into town after it was December and traveling from Florida to Seattle, you know, as, as we got closer to, I would say Oregon, um, mm -hmm. The mountain passes <laughs> with the snow and the overturned tractor tra trailers and the logging trucks and it was mm -hmm. just like by the time we got into seattle i just felt so traumatized by the terrible weather of the trip and uh so that was a big shock to me but i did i did like it for a while um oh thanks <laughs> I did. Okay. But a lot of weird stuff happened there. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Um, and it's like ever since then and the things that I've been through, cause I mean, I don't really talk about it much, but I was in a, I don't like to label things, but what some professionals would call a cult abuse dynamic for about 11 years. Oh, and sorry to hear that. It's okay. Thank you. It's it's actually been probably the best thing for me because it's sort of catapulted me to always keep I don't know what to say. I guess keep I others. <laughs> yeah, I mean I like to keep moving. I was just plain Jane vanilla when I grew up in my small town. And I don't think that I would have all of the wonderful experiences that I've had if I didn't go through that situation. Right. So it was like an initiation for me into a lot of things. And uh, I think that's probably why I move around so much. And I always I feel kind of fearless about most things because it was so 
I was in such a state of fear and trauma for so many years that freedom became the biggest thing for me. Yeah. And being an individual and not being controlled and yeah. So in a nutshell, I think that was a big factor in the way that things have turned out for me and the trajectory, trajectory, oh my God, you know what I'm trying to say, <laughs> the trajectory of my yeah. life. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, and it, uh, it makes sense, especially to come from a sort of, uh, you know, what's the clinical term, uh, you know, kind of a, a codependent, but like, you know, very one-sided malicious kind of thing that you'd want after that, like, you know, to be empowered by your lonesome, to be empowered by yourself first and foremost. Yeah. yeah. And there were some real adjustments for me getting out of that situation because you know, people, sometimes when you're in those kind of terrible abusive situations, you, you kind of self-destruct and become really reckless. And so (laughs) I became really reckless because I just, it was, I needed the opposite. I needed just as, as extreme as I could go. Um, but I've really learned to temper that over the years and not be like when I move, it's not just all willy nilly anymore. I make a real plan and make sure that it's going to work for me instead of just jumping off a cliff and hoping for the best. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. We know better now. Right. Totally. <laughs> yeah. When I, was I learned a lesson. Yeah. When you were in, uh, what was it, Cape Cod? That was a really beautiful place. But I remember you were, because of the line of your work, and maybe you can talk about that a little bit, but you know you can be commissioned for film projects you can be commissioned for art installations for you know solar solo entertainers like your work kind of allows that to well you know i might be in this other space for a while like i you know it's i don't need to plant an anchor here because you know the way of which i work you know might take me somewhere else was that kind of where you were thrusted in the past couple of years? Yeah. Um, being in Manhattan, actually, you know, I did the, the outdoor market there, one of them, one of the best ones, thankfully, I got in there. And it was really hard for me. Um, I think we're getting an echo. Sorry. It was really difficult because I had to make everything myself and then I had to be out there selling three days a week for 10 hour days in all kinds of weather. And um, uh, but it was, I knew that I had to do it. I knew that I had to do that market because it was going to open up huge doors for me because you meet all kinds of people all kinds of people, people from all over the world. You know, there's tourists and then there's um, actors and actresses and rock stars and fashion designers and all these different people walking through those markets. And that's what happened. And I did meet some really good people, good connections that I still have today. And um, one of them is a good friend of mine and she's a stylist and fashion designer. 
and she we really gelled we just hit it off right away when i met her and so i've been fortunate enough for her to pull me into a lot of these projects um and as she grows with her work and her clientele and all of that she still always looks for a place to insert me in there because she admires me and my work so much. So it's really, that's one of one of the good relationships that I've made out of that situation that uh, has, I mean, I'm grateful for it because yeah. it's kind of catapulted me into different things. And finally, I feel instead of just being a Jill of all trades and master of none, <laughs> that all of the different things that I've done um, can be combined in a way that's useful and, you know, into all these different projects that I never thought that I was gonna be a part of. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that's really beautiful to find, you know, someone else and you know a similar avenue but like a different you know facet and to congeal like that um and then also you know, i mean i met a lot of other people i met uh some musicians and things that just went crazy for my work and i was ready to pack it up for the day it was freezing and dark and then suddenly i've got this musician guy at my table like oh my god it's like yeah viking stuff it's like volcano jewelry and he's going crazy and he's like oh mm -hmm. how much do you want to come to the mercury lounge to see my see my show tonight <laughs> okay sure. and then he's like messaging me on instagram and the whole band wants to see your stuff we'll have you backstage just come you know and things <laughs> like that i've had like some very good experiences and it would I don't know if it would have happened that way if I hadn't just stuck it out and kept doing that market or doing a lot of the other things that I had done and all of the crazy gallery jobs and kinkos and mm -hmm. um you know I had years and years of retail that I did as a sales person in New York and other cities and um particularly in New York, I've met and worked with so many different celebrities and politicians, all kinds of crazy things that I never thought that I would be exposed to. So I don't know, I guess I, uh, because I went through the experience that I went through, it made me not be so terrified to just keep trying different things, even if I failed. Well, what's amazing to me and what I hear from you, and, you know, I think we share this in the kind of extremes, you know, zodiacally, I don't even think that's a word, but, you know, very much like the ponderance of, you know, the opposites of the rising and the, you know, the sun or whatever. I see, you know, this need for kind of a sporadic, you know, um, not that it's unintentional, but a very open, you know, to the wind sort of bravery. Whereas like your art in it of itself is almost like ritualistic and it has to be very kind of, you know, uh, process based because of the nature of it. And so it's like you merging both of those extremes 
in kind of one avenue. And that's like, that's really fascinating to me. Thank you. I don't yeah. know. I just, it's just what I do, but uh, yeah. And I'm just trying to think, cause I had so many different odd jobs and things and experiences. I mean, they were consult. I, you were talking about the, the film set thing and right. they were consulting me on this one job that there was a bid in for uh, on how to do different metal finishes to make things look aged like furniture and urns and um, garden tools and things like that. And I don't necessarily know how to do all those things, but I have a good knowledge of, you know, base knowledge of how things work. So, mm -hmm. and I'm not afraid to experiment and figure things out quickly. And I, I rarely say no to anything um, as far as work. Yeah. You no, know, unless it's, uh, it's not, I'm not going to do something that goes against my, my morals and all of that. But I just mean in a sense that I feel like I'm always excited to figure things out. So, right. Um, because I have done so many different things. It's so funny because I think that for a long time, my family and friends thought, oh my God, what is she doing now? She's all over the place. She's, she's, you know, selling antiques over here and she's working at a movie theater over here and, yep. and uh, managing a cupcake shop and acting you know i had to do like janitor stuff and all kinds of things and then i was sure. inter interviewing people to be candidates for uh sales and insurance and all kind i mean i i was an insurance agent and i was enrolling the fd and um the fire department in new york and all kinds of things that i'm just like what am i even doing right now this is so weird <laughs> and just random office jobs and um, yeah. being a secretary and being yeah. a receptionist and soldering cable wires together for audio visual company and all the stuff. But it finally has come together where people see the value of my different crazy experiences with all these things. Yeah. Your preferred <laughs> avenue is now your main <laughs> avenue. Yeah. Which is brilliant. And that, you know, you know, I, I often think for me, sometimes it's going to, you know, it's a life's work to even just find that out. So I'm always really excited when friends, you know, are finally, you know, given the, I don't know, the celebration of what they should be celebrated for. You know, I, I remember when you were sharing with me, I don't know if I can talk about this. So, uh, Sure, whatever well, it, it is, was, I'm sure you can a, talk about it. It was a client who, at the time, yeah. I know we had to kind of uh, me and some other people, you know, probably Nish as well, um, just had to kind of, you know, keep it on the download just because it was something in the process. But Zola Jesus, yeah, you know, wearing your jewelry and Zola Jesus in and of, you know, themselves is a particularly uh, enigmatic metaphysically minded kind of you know brilliant anarchic artist in and of themselves you know and then you got to kind of you know uh, or 
how do I put it? Like, uh, what's the word? Adorn. You got to adorn them, you know, for a project. And I just thought that was so cool. That's like the these different anarchic processes of people finding their avenues that, you know, kind of come together. But yeah, it was very yeah, cool. Can thank you. you. Yeah, it's very that? exciting um, because I actually got to create pieces specifically for her, for her new album, Archon. And, uh, you Getting know, my, my friend Ella, she was the stylist for all that. What was that? I said a fitting name, Archon. That's yeah. Funny. I know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> when I learned the name of the album, um, yeah. what? There were <laughs> there were three different looks that Zola wanted to do for the album, and so my friend Ella had given me uh, the different the different looks and the descriptions and um, you know some of the the vision boards for the different. Uh, costumes or outfits so, so what did that look like was that like a digital vision board like a Pinterest yeah kind of yeah okay like that pretty that's much. what that's used for okay pinterest, pinterest yeah. oh no no it was it was some kind of uh private file but oh cool it's, it's similar to that where you you pin different looks that you are trying to achieve so you know, the, the themes were very fiery, like, you know, Phoenix from the Ashes kind of thing, um, Red Riding Hood and uh, like Queen of the Forest type themes. So sure. I had to create different looks for each theme and I did a bunch of pieces. It was so crazy because I had literally, I was sick for weeks. I was sick for like seven weeks with I don't know what and I was finally getting better and then my friend approached me she's like hey I have this amazing project and I would love for you to be a part of it and she's like we only have this amount of time and I was like I have all the time in the world now because it's winter and you know it's after the holidays and um I was so excited to get back to work because I was just laid out for so long. Yeah. So I put together some really big, bold pieces and I, I kind of did my own sort of vision board of rocks and crystals and metals and things and sent that over. And then she's like, Oh my God, I love it. So I just started creating things and uh, I was thrilled because the, the one piece that I really, very specifically made for her ended up being featured on all the magazines it's that big uh it looks like a red crystal heart with snakes and hold a on big... i think i i have okay good. Show <laughs> the, the yeah the image let me see hopefully this is it um do 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 <laughs> i opened it and uh okay uh, this one? Yeah, that's that's the one. And actually, yeah, all of those. Um, Hold on, those, the ring ended up in some of the pictures, too. But that that was what was kind of the press release picture. 
And so it was like front and center. And I was so excited because that was the one that I really wanted her to be seen in. I mean, absolutely stunning. It's incredible. Thank you. It was really difficult to make too. I'm sure. So, yeah. Let's like, <laughs> because I, I thought know. I was going to break the crystal of the specimen. I'm so lucky I didn't because I had to, the, I had to make the, the, the metal thick enough to hold such a heavy piece but i also it it becomes very stiff to work with and you have to really push it down so i was like oh my god i'm gonna crunch this thing and somehow i pulled it off i mean yeah it's incredible so what was the process of that like because it looks so involved you know was uh obviously they gave you a vision board of but like you kind of ran with it, right? This was yeah. pretty much just your interpretation. This was me, basically. Yeah. This piece, because all of them really, but um, this was the one that I really took the most liberty with. That and that other ring that looks like a crazy, I don't know, bird of paradise or something. Um, mm -hmm. There was something about this specimen that I hadn't seen before. I had it for quite a while and I had it, I had them all laid out on the table and the way it was positioned, I was like, Oh my God, it kind of looks like a heart. And I'm not, you know, I, I wasn't yeah. interested in anything. I don't, I don't do like, you know, typical hearts or things like that, but right. this seems like a heart of fire for me. It was just very fiery looking. Um, you can see in some of the other pictures where it's it's really red. And when I saw that, I just kind of envisioned this snake kind of wrapping around it. And so I said, well, let me see what I can do. And I have these really thick strips of brass and I heated them up and I started shaping them into snakes. So I had to hammer them and I was doing all kinds of things and um oh, here we go a lot of playing oh. around to get it to fit here we go yeah this is incredible this okay so give me a second here um this is the other jewelry that you were doing yeah yeah oh my god yeah <laughs> that was the other sort of phoenix fire thing but if you incredible go to the next to the big heart piece you can see that one how red and everything yeah yeah and then i had this big sort of byzantine looking brass chain um which is incredible vintage. and i and needed I, I knew it needed to be on something big and bold all of it just to yeah. hold together and to look great aesthetically i kitty yeah i just love how there's there's an unruliness to it but there's also like a very systematic like there's an intent to it too and that's what i was talking about you know finding that confluence between even like your life and has it how it's laid out and what you do artistically like is almost perfectly mirrored in your pieces and it's yeah it's just wonderful that this became you know zola's ornament of power for this record for yes. this documentation of self you know yeah. um uh 
an artist entrusting you to you know kind of make manifest these you know pieces that they'll have forever you know they'll carry you know a photograph or like an, an album cover is one thing right but to have like these ornaments to you know shuffle onto wherever else you know life leads them and to have something so tactile is just yeah it's brilliant well, she didn't actually keep them, but <laughs> oh, no? Um, no, I, she loved them, but she that was part of the thing to return them. But I created them for that album shoot. Oh, for the shoot. I think she definitely would have kept some. I don't know why she she didn't uh, mm -hmm. contact. Well, me. I mean, it's I forever. It, they're 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 yeah. okay. We'll we'll put it this way: they're not exactly everyday wear. So that's right. probably part of it. I mean, they would be awesome in concert or something, but I don't, they're not very practical. And that's the thing where it's become a really sort of niche thing for me um, to make these big, make like runway or photo shoot pieces because they're, they're bold and they, you know, they need to be seen from a distance. Um, so yeah not they don't always get kept by people but uh that just gives them more value it, it, it people Absolutely. really want a piece of that you know yeah because they, they wanted do collect something... power they do collect a charge as they go through these things and different people well and also it haunts on to you know the photography and artwork and everything that she utilized to right. charge that you know piece of her artistic discography or whatever like that's incredible you know um you you use the word specimen i know you define it on your site but i was hoping you could probably define it for listeners like what you mean oh boy. <laughs> well i mean there's different kinds of rocks and typically if it's like a mineral uh cluster or formation it's just called a specimen okay. uh and a lot of these that I'm using are definitely not normally used in jewelry. I mean, I know a lot of people out there are using crystal, like single quartz crystals and some big, big stuff. Right. Um, some of these have been a bit brittle, so they're not necessarily, like I said, for everyday wear. Um, but specimens, yeah, it usually it's a cluster of something could be just one type of mineral rock whatever or you know a combined group of different kinds of uh rocks together forming together they're formations basically okay i love that because yeah they're this unruly growth that instead of you kind of you keep the error almost like the asymmetrical error yeah. of the growth instead of trying to do this you know yeah, algorithmic like thing or this human thing of correcting it or making it you know kind of ruly right and, like I, the I commercial jewelry with all the yeah. cut stones which i do also really like the cut stones the sort of smooth polished cabochons are called or the faceted kind like your diamond or whatever mm -hmm. um and there's different in-betweens too but i 
I, like I was talking about earlier, I really like the imperfections of things. I find a yeah. lot of beauty in that because they're really overlooked for their natural beauty often. So, you I know, I talk it. about that all the time, just, you know, not to bring it back to AI, but I think like any kind of process that tries to eradicate error, I feel is missing the point from me, <laughs> from my like artistic process like i someone was saying the other day you know oh i'm a perfectionist and i said i'm not a perfectionist well actually i'm a perfectionist in human error that's my perfection <laughs> when it comes to screwing up i'm the guy you know? yeah i'm with you <laughs> yeah, but it's also kind of a superpower, I feel, not not like in a woo sense, but in a very, you know, charged kind of confidence about, you know, my own contradiction or, you know, my own perfection. It's And I think that comes from experience, that comes from, you know, not needing to be nestled within the symmetrical sense of, you know, society or... Right whatever and it's the micro and macro you know it can be that unruly you know um almost cataclysmic jewelry piece that in and of itself is symmetrical to a different stance you know but it's also like how you're living your life it's you know symmetrical to your stance but not symmetrical to you know the pareidolia of <laughs> human pattern making or whatever yeah yeah and is that that's just something that was just kind of born of you right that wasn't it wasn't so much intentional but i i would say it was almost an observation that you've noticed of your pattern making that you do enjoy the imperfections you do enjoy the you know I don't know, the offset yeah. of some things. <laughs> I do because, uh, you know, I was basically broken as a person. And so I had to build myself back up from square one. And all that time of being controlled and confined and, um, having my voice silenced you know getting back into things and i had to completely relearn who i was yeah and what i wanted and what was important to me and what i liked and didn't like and not have not be told what i liked and things like that so during that time I started really noticing things that I probably wouldn't have seen before and really finding beauty in those things. So it kind of just cracked my mold, I guess. And um, it just opened up a whole new world for me. And so it's really, oh my gosh, it's been such a evolution. Right. <laughs> I mean, I got out of that situation in 2012. So it's been a decade of really evolving into something else, yeah. which I'm 
so happy about. <laughs> it's like so grateful for it all. Yeah, that was around the same time that I had my big switch of, I mean, it was, you know, there was a lot of spits and spurts along the way, but that was like the big turning point was the end of 2011. Yeah. And so, I, yeah, I share that with you. But I also, like, I see, you know, this, the beauty and the imperfection. I see it with, is it right to say, like, in your brass bending and your molding, like, you can see almost, like, the hammer marks and, like, the indentations. And, like, there's there's a beauty in that you can actually see the process. Yes, that's a big deal for me. Yeah. yeah, I love showing the process and everything because... People are so focused on cookie cutter and uh, they never even think about, I'm mean, not everyone, but uh, people don't think about all the work that goes into things. And so I actually really get a kick out of leaving evidence of the process and everything. Yeah. <laughs> I try not to make anything too perfect, too shiny, too polished. Mm -hmm. I always like to leave the scars um, because it's part of how the piece comes about. So to me, I just really love that. Yeah. That's too. my life too, you know, like yeah, it's how my life has gone. So it does reflect in the pieces for sure. Yeah. And it's, yeah, there's just like a very, I love it. There's a deep-seated, like, punk ethos. And I don't mean, like, the genre of music. I just mean, you know, the ethos of it, you know, of, like, celebrating imperfection. But also, like, if you look at it on the outside, you know, whatever you're commissioned, you get. And it'll be to your specifications. But there's marks to remind you that there was blood and sweat. And, <laughs> Sometimes you know. there's really blood. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sometimes I accidentally stab myself or whatever. So, yeah. Well, I do want to talk as uh, I know we didn't address it. As some of the chat might realize, we are in costume. I know it looks like our everyday <laughs> wear. But uh but yeah, we wanted to get a little celebratory about this autumnal swing of which we're in and the spooky season. And I wanted to ask you as far as like a, a metalsmith, a gemsmith, like do you find correlations about uh, seasons and certain metals and gems that you tend to feel have more resonance with, you know, this decay of which we're all in? Yeah, I mean, I guess so. I hadn't really thought about that before, but um, for me, autumn and winter are a big uh, time of reflection and introspection. And, um, you know, we're, we're moving into a time of decay and death, mm -hmm. basically. So, yeah, I would say that I probably get more influenced by those things through the seasons and then you know when you get into spring sometimes i'll want to use more colors or something and uh start something fresh that i maybe haven't done before so yeah i could see how the seasons play into it for sure so you feel syncopated too i guess to that tether of nature 
Because sometimes I feel that I'm almost the opposite. I feel a lot of the ponderances about, you know, a sort of decay or there, there will be like this drought of harvest in the spring, but I'll find bounties in autumn. You know what I mean? And this kind of like twist. And I always wonder if other people you know, feel that or if, if like there's a, you know, a tether kind of to the fabric because, you know, nature is our compass. It really is, yeah. you know, and I feel sometimes mine, my magnetic North is probably upside down. <laughs> <you know? laughs> well, I agree with you there. I mean, fall is my favorite season and mm -hmm. it always has been. And I feel, even though it, it emotionally um, is difficult for me, for whatever reason, I still find a lot of creative spark at that time. Yeah. So there's that high contrast of the decay and the death process going through, and then also um, rebirth and birthing out new things and cats meowing. Yeah. <laughs> Crazy cat. I guess it, uh, it makes sense in a... Um you know, kind of an astrological sense if you were, you know, speaking like the tropical or, you know, Western astrology too, you being almost that end of summer baby, right? Me mm -hmm. being a dead of winter baby, it would be flipped in a sense of like a inherent idea. Because like when I move into winter, you know, it's not my favorite by any means. I don't think it's worse than spring yeah. or anything, but there's just a weird um, flux of change that I feel is almost like uh, argumentative with everybody else's interpretation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel that way about spring. Yeah. I hate spring. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I, there's things obviously I love about it when the weather starts to get nice and whatever, but mm. there's just something I, I have a very difficult time in spring. I don't know. What yeah. It is. I don't know what that is either. And it's definitely, um, I'm sure there's mental disfluencies for me that, you know, are triggered by it or I, I don't know. I, I, I keep trying to trace it, but these, this autumnal swing that we're in, is a quick bounty for me and then mm -hmm. winter hits and it just you know depending on where i'm at you know thankfully the pacific northwest isn't my you know snow hell hole that <laughs> i could be in but um you know that's just because i'm a desert kid where i'm like yeah i want the rain but no snow's too much you know <laughs> so, yeah so there's a lot of like these different you know tethers and aspects and i was just wondering for you yeah if you felt the same do you feel um more creatively in tune during the autumn and you know why do you think that is i don't know i don't know it could be because i am a late summer baby um i always mm -hmm. thought that was a big factor in it i always loved the extreme change of seasons uh, on the East Coast, you really notice them all. Yeah. And so, you know, that. Oh, in the fall on the East Coast. Come yeah, on. with the leaf, yeah. leaves changing, the foliage. 
you win. That's a big thing. (laughs) So uh, it's really in your face, basically, that things are, you know, moving into winter. Yeah. Um, But it's beautiful. And I think there's something just amazing about the blue in the sky at that time of year and the lighting and the smells, the, you know, the leaves and everything. And then obviously the pumpkins and um, Halloween, I always loved. It's just, I don't know, it's a great time of year. So it, 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 to me, gives a lot of inspiration. Yeah, you don't like, I don't mean to ask this question like, um, uh, you know, somebody else would ask us, right? Like I had a girlfriend once asked me why I was so obsessed with death. And I was like, I don't know how to answer that question because it's the wrong question. You know, (laughs) like it's not that I'm obsessed with death. It's that, you know, to me, it's this almost like ever evolving absolute of which we all face. And, you know, I'm bewildered with wonderment about it. Right. It's not like macabre. It's not, you know what I mean? It's not that death and how people kind of visualize it maybe like in our shared realm or whatever that's that's kind of not what i mean it's more of like a fascination and wonderment about what comes after what what this change is and i was wondering if you felt kind of that same way like or have you been kind of macabre in the sense of you know the final or the i would put it in quotation marks but the finality of you know our skin bags. <laughs> you know, like. <laughs> oh man. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I have been, and I have had some near death experiences and, um, just, I mean, I've been talking a lot of woo on all these different recordings with people. So I'm not going to get all woo, but Oh, go for it. Uh, yeah. I've always had what people call supernatural experiences since I was a kid. And um, all the crazy dreams and uh, just different extra sensory abilities. So I have kind of been experiencing a close relationship with death in different ways for a long time. Mm -hmm. Um, It fascinates me. And for a long time, I was terrified of it. And now having been through a lot of experiences and a couple of near death experiences, uh, I'm not afraid of it anymore. And it fascinates me even more in some ways because I really want to know what happens right when yeah. we die <laughs> even though i think i i have some ideas um we're gonna find out <laughs> we're gonna, i hope we're gonna find out i yeah. hope we are after all this. i mean we're gonna find out <laughs> that would suck either if way. We didn't. <laughs> uh, but but to me yeah that's the great equalizer it's like Especially when it comes to holidays, you know, I feel, and I was talking uh, about this with Anthony Tyler on his podcast um, recently, we were talking about just kind of the general allowance that 
Autumn gives a like society into addressing these things. And it's like through the guise of a holiday, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like where there's an allowance of like, I know you're fighting all day not to think about these things, but here we get to infantilize it and be fun and, and kitschy about it. And it's Disneyland. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which is great. Don't get me wrong. I love yeah. it. But I also think that, you know, for some, like for me, it's it's like this is probably the most honest we are as a society as when we're like doing that, even if it is infantilized or Disneyland about it, because like neither, you know, race nor creed or religion or whatever. We all have this great equalizer and we all need to, you know, kind of come to terms with it in a way. And a lot of the people that, you know, are fighting so against it every day to not think about it are allowed to think about it and to think of it in kind of funny, you know, exciting ways or, you know what I mean? Like it it gets to, they get to kind of uh, touch it a little bit. And to me, like, this is the most honest time in a, in, in a human development uh, with the decay of autumn, you know, if there is birth, breath and decay, you know, this is the decay of which we all hit. It's the great equalizer and it's the most honest we are. And it has nothing to do with Samhain or, you know, I mean, parts of it do, but like it has nothing to do with like very specific holidays where Dia de los Muertos or whatever. There's this connection about the autumn, about fall, of which we all feel the fabric of just how loose we have our fingers on the pulse of what this all means. And we're all okay to, you know, address it and to skirt it. And yeah, to me, autumn is kind of the most human of all of the seasons. Because if you think about it, we're all in a, we're always decaying. We're always on our we're way always, to we're dying every day yeah yeah and it's not a dark thing and that's what's really hard to explain to people like my ex-girlfriend where <laughs> it's like it's not an obsession about morbidity it's 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 an obsession about like this shared equilibrium we have like no matter our cultures no matter where we come from or like it's it's the great equalizer we are all equal at the eyes of you know whatever ends up happening right and so that yeah that's that's always been my fascination with it and that's that's why i love the holiday and of course you know i'll i'll put on silly suits i'll watch (laughs) goofy movies and you know but then again what i'm trying to say is every day is halloween (laughs) true it really is and it is another process Mm -hmm. of life and I guess for people that like to see the process, we are people that are really looking at it and enjoying experiencing it and trying to figure it out. The levity is there's anything wrong with it at all. No, and the levity is so warranted. I wish we had more humor about all of this, you know? And, and we true. do you know, around this time, I think collectively as as a 
people, I sound so pretentious, collectively as a people. <laughs> um, but what I mean is like it's we give each other a kind of resolve about, yeah, how interesting is this? Okay, great. Can't wait for Christmas. You know, <laughs> can't wait for the happy stuff during the dark stuff, you know. And yeah, it's just kind of a um, it's a stasis of which I find myself in no matter the time of year. But there is for the first, you know, time in a year when autumn comes around, I feel an equilibrium. I think I feel like a um, I feel a part of the patchworking at, that is shared by everybody. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. you know and i think yeah it's a very celebratory time in that sense where i think like no matter what you know we realize just how human you know error is especially in our genetic code or our biology yeah it's pretty funny right <laughs> i think it is i you yeah. know um I guess it just depends on what people hold precious or whatever. I, for me, I don't, and it's funny cause I've been able to talk about my, with my parents about this because they're older now and I'm fortunate to still have both of them around, but mm-hmm. we're all on the same page about it that of course it's sad. Of course you're going to, feel the loss no matter how you feel about it but at the same time it's just a a transition it's just another part of the process so for me I don't get all bent out of shape with this cat is so insane what's the cat name (laughs) her name is Millicent Barnes that's right (laughs) such a great name she's a sweetie it's just I think she's pregnant, so. <laughs> but anyway, um, getting back to death. Yeah, getting back. Back to our light topic. I just, I don't know. For me, I've always looked at it, especially, like I said, because I've had the supernatural experiences and I've seen what I think are spirits and beings and things like that. Uh, this is just sort of a holding station for us and mm-hmm. we, we move on to something else. And I, you know, whatever people believe, whatever they want to believe, whether we just, you know, die off into the darkness and we just don't exist anymore or whatever. To me, everything is energy and energy always uh, shifts to something else. So right. um, it's really just that's a, the way I'm looking at it. Yeah, it's really when it comes to that, it's really just a discussion of like energy when it dissipates and re-evolves. Will it have an echo? Will it have a memory of what it was? Right. Probably not. You know, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. fucking know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't fucking know. But All I think I it's know- good to not be afraid to look at these right. things and to really want to understand what they are and um I don't know. Yeah. I think and when it came, cool. you know, to preternatural or, you know, um, I don't know, paranormal experiences, 
a lot of mine have to do with me as a kid, but most recently, the more kind of preternatural things that I've witnessed have a lot to do with a kind of like resonance that I'm tuning into within like an audiomancy ritual or something. And to this day, there are some things where I'm like, no, there's no way I could have known that. And then I'll figure it out later that it is of something else or it's probably not from me. There's still that snide little idea that how do I know it's not just me and untapped things that, you know, are resonating. You know, I always love that idea of the poltergeist being you know a like untapped psychic power from a prepubescent you know kid at the house. <laughs> yeah you know that's a, such a fascinating idea for me you know but yeah we can be here all day thinking about that. <laughs> so all, all i know you know all i know is that i have had experiences paranormal or otherwise you know, I'm not sure if it's so much beyond the grave. I think there's almost like an acoustical resonance that I think about a lot, especially in kind of a signal flow or theory, you know, about these wooden places that we exist in and it retaining kind of, you know, hard echoed energy and mm -hmm. it reverberating. And, you know, there's so many things that fly through my head about it. But all I know is, you know, is that it's absolutely fascinating and it's really fun when everybody's in the mood to talk about it <laughs> exactly. during hot autumn, you know. <laughs> Finally, I'm not the weirdo at the fucking punch no. bowl, you know. <laughs> hey, you want to talk about this? Yeah. Hey, it's Halloween. You want to talk about this? Yeah. Yeah, it's the one acceptable time. Although, you know, you could always go too far even then. Yeah. But I think that's fascinating with uh, the resonances and the frequencies and harmonics of things. I think that, um, well, whatever, I go down a whole road there, but I'm, I'm with you. I agree on that. Yeah, I'll say this, and I, I found this like with my current practice with the jokingly, now I think it's gonna stick, which sucks, is I jokingly call it hauntomancy. Um, because my kitschy ass likes those sort of portmanteaus <laughs> or whatever. But, um, you know, when you study like uh, signal flow and frequency and stuff, it, there's this idea of resonance that everything has an inherent resonance that vibrates, right? And what was fascinating to me is that, you know, and this could be applicable to, um, you know, running live sound or something when you're trying to negate feedback it's the resonance of the mic hearing itself that gives feedback and like to me that like spoke so much about just experience about maybe thinking too much about you know spelunking too deeply into this shit like you are hearing yourself you, you are the mic hearing itself and there's this feedback or a burrows loop you know that wow. you have to kind of coordinate i love that yeah that's so cool i never yeah. thought no way that's very and cool. like it's very much uh you know i think about those paranormal experiences especially when it comes to sound you know 
which is interesting because I think smell would probably be the first one you go to, but that's that's also not trustworthy. Neither neither of them are, you know. <laughs> but it's uh, as as far as like a metaphor, yeah, I really feel that seems to me about those experiences, right? Welcome to the Muse Memorandum. I'm your host, JJ, and I'm back with another wonderful guest today. I have my friend, an extremely talented person, Keats Ross, here with us. And he's a writer, musician, hauntomancer, which I'm sure he's going to explain a little bit further for everyone, and just an all-around wonderful guy. So I'm excited to have him here with us today. And I just want to say really quickly before we get started that I am really just overwhelmed with all the support 
and the encouragement and all of the, the wonderful suggestions and feedback and referrals of guests. So I want to thank everyone for being so supportive to keep the project going. And I have several guests line up for the rest of the year for the show and a bunch of submissions for the weekly blog. So thank you, everyone. I appreciate it. And without further ado, I'd like to bring on my friend, Keats Ross. How are you today? Good. How are you? Thank you for that too kind of an intro. Um, <laughs> I'm good. And yeah, uh, congratulations on this. You were born to do it. I'm so excited that you took the leap and are <laughs> getting into it because the conversations have been fantastic. And uh, I'm, I'm very picky, just to let you know. Wow, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I love it when people yeah, say I mean, that. It's, like, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's a little, you know, I'm, I'm keeping it lo-fi because I'm just not a tech wizard, but um, I just, I'm trying to keep it fun and on like a conversation level. So I appreciate the feedback and uh, I'm thrilled to have you on today with me. You were so kind to have me on your show in October. Yeah. We're, not, we're not wearing masks today or makeup well, or whatever. So that's debatable. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's invisible. So yeah, that's yeah, that's pretty part and parcel to a lot of the stuff recently I've been messing with. But yeah, you have just been <laughs> such a bright friend and uh, such a wonderful creator yourself. And, you know, I think having you on the Pragmagic, the stream, I'm still planning on editing and doing the podcast of our talk. And I thought, this would be a good um, kind of pairing. Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, you've just been such a light. And, uh, yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you. Likewise. So, <laughs> um, maybe if you could just start giving everybody a bit of, like, a, a background on yourself and um, how you got interested in all of everything you do and um any early inspirations you might have i know that's like all over the place but i'm sure you can pull it together yeah no um i've always been first and foremost artistically minded um uh especially when it came to writing and stories i think the only thing i've ever won in my life was like poetry contests when i was a kid and um not that that helped um you know uh, motivate me in any way but it's just kind of like a, uh, uh, a you know a fact of like that I was very interested in it and, and doing it quite a bit um, yeah and then music has also been a part of it you know I've uh, put out probably close to 15 full-length records by now um, I started recording and releasing music when I was 13 uh, back when mp3.com was a thing and wow yeah, it was the first venture where, you know, I started getting, I was, you know, working with cassette tapes and four track recording. And then the advent of digital recording came around and the digital audio workstation and all of the possibilities. And it became more um, autonomous for me as a creator to play every instrument, to do everything. And then mp3.com had a thing where you could, you know, upload the songs and then you could actually get CDs printed. So I was, you know, I was passing out these CDs under monikers and what I term like heteronyms, which is a 
literary device for a dramatis personae or whatever. Um, that started as Dakota Slim, and I would sneak these CDs to friends and be like, hey, you've got to listen to this. This guy's odd. And they all knew it was me, um, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but, you know, it was always trying to get people's honest opinion without any, you know, kind of uh, relation, I guess, like, or somatic relation to the work um, to find, like, what people really thought. And, of course, people weren't that interested or they thought it was too odd or, you know, strange and i just kept up with it and uh i've moved around the country um my entire life very wayfaring and a vagabond um lost soul kind of uh you know land of nod kind of thing and um the entire time like through my entire life uh the one thing i've managed to do was write or make a record and those are kind of my documents of where i've been so i look at my discography as kind of a journalism and uh documentation of the self and you know i started writing for um disinfo.com when i was pretty young and exploring kind of metaphysical means to enhance and inspire artistic um processes because that's the you know to me magic is art and vice versa it's you know we can sit on the spires of all these like highfalutin ideas and and all of that but really the pragmatism of needing to create and needing to remove yourself from kind of the somatic reality you know i think is like one of the most genuine forms of spirituality so yeah um yeah so it's been yeah it's been a long story documentation you know through all of my personal changes and you know missives and different things that i've been through i've always managed to create and that's been my anchor to the world and yeah i still do it and <laughs> probably ad nauseum so it's forever <laughs> experimenting you know forever documenting well. yeah yeah, that's great though. I mean, you've got a lot of, you're always spinning so many plates of um, just really incredible, talented, creative things. And um, I think, you know, it's okay to keep experimenting like that. I think that's the best thing to do to really get a good sense of yourself and where you've been and where you're going and all that. Um, what I wanted to ask while you were talking, I was thinking about, you know, you're talking about making basically a, a recorded timeline of your life. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you ever go back through your older work and recordings and journals and um, what do you, so you do, what do you, um, I think you stalled a little bit. Uh-oh. Oh, there you go. There you are. <laughs> oh, boy. It should be So, fine. yeah, you were talking about going back to these documents. Um, yeah, the my recent work, Haunt Manual, which, you know, I call a living grimoire, but it's really a journal about kind of memory, um, ghosts of the past. Um, it's a lot of philosophy and artistic expression and how it's related to me over the years and I kind of use the idea of hauntology you know which is 
very much a philosophical idea of repeating patterns and motifs in popular culture. And I started using it and saying the hauntology of the self. So going back and finding lost synapses of artistic whims and wonders that, you know, you might have lost sight of or, you know, get buried under the minutia of years and experience. And so there has been a lot of like spelunking into the past and albums and what I was intending to do, right, rather than what came out. And yeah, so it's it's kind of like this sample culture of the self and uh, bridging those times of the past where, you know, they were otherwise finished, but it doesn't have to be finished. It's kind of forever permeating and changing. And, you know, I'm very much against that. Uh, once a work is out, it's it's done. You know, you should be able as a creator to manipulate it and kind of regurgitate it or, you know, be even be uh, oppositional towards it um, because everyone has that right, even to the music or art that you do. Right. So it's kind of like taking it back and figuring out the intentions, what inspired me throughout these things. And uh, yeah, so that's been the, the recent work. So that's very much, you know, what <laughs> has been like <laughs> maddening as of late, but in a good way, um, because it really does in and of itself. When you do that, you you work through traumas and you work through kind of memories and the ghosts of the past and how they inform the future and these reoccurring motifs and struggles that you're probably not you're otherwise not aware of unless you're really looking into it you know so exactly yeah so in a way it's been this uh great mental health exercise to not only create an experiment uh utilizing some of the old uh to make something new but also you know to kind of journey inward and forgive myself or work with things that are haunting that I can't name, you know? So, yeah. So what, uh, what has been maybe the biggest pattern that you've noticed about going back through these things? Are there a couple of, um, examples where you feel like you've made big strides and, and, uh, have been able to heal things up, that kind of thing? Yeah, so the first working I did, um, you know, it it came from a place of desperation. I think as artists, we go through these ebbs and flows where things come in like a mad rush. And then there's these dry spells where like nothing seems inspirational or everything kind of seems like this uh, unforgivable, relenting desert, you know, that you're just mm -hmm. trudging through trying to find water for something inspirational. So I was in a in a weird space when I started Haunt Manual because of that. And it was really like a gamble with understanding my mental health and my mental disfluencies and why these spells happen. And then also realizing like, wow, you know, 2017 um, as like a vector of self was a very bountiful year for me. Um, you know, it's uh, pretty much led the path working of which I'm on. So. I started, you know, going back to that year and digging up journals, um, you know, working with instruments even that I had back then and doing these kind of improvised things to allow like synapses to return, you know, without much um, 
foresight. And I unearthed a lot of like, you know, forgotten pieces of artwork or ideas that were there. But it also, funny enough, uh, and I don't know, this is one of the synchronous parts of it, but it threw me back literally to where I was when I was 2017. Like before I did the ritual or, you know, the audiomancy process or whatever I call it, it's really just like a, you know, the fun there's a fun lexicon for all of this, but it's really just a, <laughs> you know, artistic uh, expression. Right. But before I did that, I had no idea that, you know, soon after I was thrusted literally back to the city I was in, uh, working with the company that it, I had worked with back then, uh, wow. staying at the house where I met Mary or like we started our relationship and it brought up a lot of, how do I put it? Like, there was a lot of bad with it too, you know. There was um you forget like with rose-colored glasses like oh 2017 was you know such a beautiful year and it's it was a bounty. It's like when I started the podcast, the relationship, my dog, um an album that you know I consider kind of the real debut after years and years and years of putting out records. And when I was thrust back there, it gave me this like it gave me this ability to remember that it was a tower card or it was like it was a destructive part too. you know, with all of that okay. creation came a lot of dissemination and destruction of the past before it. And, you know, of course, I forget all of that stuff because or, you know, maybe as, uh, you know, memory can be a defense mechanism. You right. remember the beautiful stuff because the, the rough stuff doesn't uh treat you well pragmatically it's you not know? so appealing right <laughs> yeah and so after doing that i was thrust back and had to deal a lot with it was like it allowed me to say goodbye to things it allowed me to yeah it allowed me to kind of um yeah forgive that part but also know that it wasn't so rose-colored and it you know it was a really big uh personal exploration about my memory and you know, the, the folklore we tell ourselves, the mm -hmm. folklore that we create. And, you know, when I came back, I was like, okay, that was fun. Let's not do it like this again. <laughs> you know? so, exactly. so the next one was like, okay, I'm not going to focus on a year of the self. I'm going to focus on an aspect, uh, something that's been missing, you know, that I really cherished from the past. And of course, you know, to bring into the present and it, uh, you know, when I was young, it was this ability to, you know, free from all of the judgment of the world is to tinker into the night, you know, without any expectation of what I was doing and, you know, make these like mutant sound collages or circuit bend keyboards. And it was like I was a mad scientist discovering new sounds and, you know, ways of doing things. And so I, you know, I focused on that and that that next uh, working or whatever. And it gave me, um, the working itself became an album of something very similar that I would have put out in high school, but, you know, with my knowledge now, and it gave me like a freedom to work under another moniker and do this weird improv Casio drum machine circuit bend thing, you know, something very different than what I normally do or just a part of what I normally do. So 
it's that was super beneficial, you know, and it, uh, yeah, it just inspired new avenues by thinking about what I had missed about the kind of conventions or free from conventions of artistic working and adulthood, you know, and <laughs> after years of putting out stuff, there's, you know, like a subtle, I don't want to call it an ache, but there's like a subtle knowledge of how beautiful it feels for the release of that thing, but how unsustainable that is. And mm. a couple of days, you're just thinking about the next thing. Exactly. It's like this hungry ghost needing to fill, you know, it's big belly, but can't fit the things down its tiny throat, you know? So, <laughs> um, so yeah, so that was, you know, a big aspect of it. And it kind of worked me through my feelings about, um, success or what I consider, you know, um, translatable, I guess, to a wide audience or things I never really considered or cared about, you know, and it fortified those uh, wants to not care about that stuff so much, you know, so. Sounds like a big sort of liberation event for you in a lot of ways. Yeah, and there's also a liberation in knowing that there are parts of that. Like, I want, say, people like you or Mary or other artists um, that I enjoy or, you know, like, look to their work and are extremely ex respectful for. I would like them to get it. You know what I mean? Like, I would like them to enjoy it or understand where it comes from. So that was something I hadn't really put into words or, you know considered it was always just like a, i don't care i'm just going to do it and what happens is what happens you know so it was cool to feel that that there is a part of me that you know does care about some sort of reciprocation of respect or inspiration that i get from other artists that i enjoy or creators or thinkers or or whatever so that was a, a eureka moment of <laughs> You know, I'm not so alone kind of in this spiraling, you know, creative chaos is that there are echoes of human need, you know, that are right. there and not so alien at all kind of a kind of a feeling. So, yeah. Sounds like a, a great testament to the evolution of self to me. Yeah. And, you know, that's essentially what it is. It's just in my own way of utilizing my folklore, the stories I tell myself, my my past. Um, but the entire objective is to do something new with it. The entire objective is to, you know, merge the past and the present into kind of this, you know, unknowable future, this experimentation of the future, finding things that inspire me. You know, it was like through these modes um, I just, yeah, hit this fountain and it's everything, it's, you know, tethered all of the mediums that I'm creative in, whether it's like the podcasting or video or, you know, film, stories, fiction, um, music, experimental music, it's all in there and it like all connects and it came at a place where I was yearning for like a focus. So... Yeah, it's coming to an end for the first volume of the Haunt Manual. Um, 
I just tomorrow I'm going to publicly through the podcast release the third working that kind of ties the last two together, but also focuses more towards the future and has fun with um, a gamatria and also, um, you know, utilizing a spirit box to kind of oh, wow. the hypothesis is like I'm talking to a future self, you know. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it gets really trippy. But, you know, what anchors me with all of that is that isn't it fun? You know, isn't it just such a joy to like it just like helps like all of all of these uh, crazy, you know, big ideas like they're all just like things to help me kind of relate to bigger questions and like you know what is the self and death and the idea of permanence or is you know the absolute is there any such thing probably not you know so yeah they're all just uh you know they're they're pragmatic in the sense that they are creative workings that i can share to people make as albums you know which i had for the last two um and you know it it's listenable uh people i hope can read it it's you know doesn't get too in the weeds there's a lot of if i do get referential there's footnotes you know so wow. it's it's really a journal and a document um about my processes to utilize the past to enhance the present portend the future you know kind of a thing and uh yeah, the manual part is that. This, it's not like follow these instructions and you can too. The manual <laughs> is me. Like this is my anarchic praxis. You can build one too in a way. So Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, That's I know cool. like it can be, it sounds wooey and everything, but it's really not. Um, well, it doesn't to me. It might to some yeah. people, but no, not to yeah. me. It's fun. I just, you know, <clears throat> it's, it's a lexicon that that can answer a lot of you know, those questions by still utilizing the same vernacular, you know, but using it in artistic ways to express something that is otherworldly. But at the end of the day, I uh, cheesily make up my own vernacular and lexicon for it, <laughs> you know, which is where hauntomancy comes from. I love that. Which is basically just the practice of the hauntology of the self and creative kind of ritualistic workings. That's that's all it is. Um, it's there if you want to get deep and weird with it, but it's also very <laughs> practical, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, I was thinking about when you, you mentioned earlier, you were talking about, um, you called it collage. Mm. And to me, all, bringing all of these different elements together, it does sound like a collage to me. And normally people think of visual collage. Like for me, I've done a lot of uh, analog paper collage with magazine mm -hmm. cutouts and things like that and, and just mixed media in general. So um, I didn't really think about that, that the music and all of these other media elements could be brought together as a collage. And I think you've really successfully done that in a in an audio visual type of presentation. Um, I'm trying to think of where I'm going, but <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I agree. Um, 
I think it, you know, it kind of correlates to like the William Burroughs and Brian Geisen idea of the third mind, you know, which are these two disparate parts that you're bringing together that kind of communes or converses in a third way. And they used cut-ups for that. So the macro is like, yeah, the hot manual and all its like mediums is a third mind of all of those things. But the micro is also the um, intentions and processes within the music, the tools I'm using, you know, the, 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 if you were to, you know, scissors, what kind of paper, what type of scissor sort of thing, which is intentful throughout. Like it, all of that is extremely intentful. All of the tools are there. But in the bigger picture, you're right. It is a very much uh, like a mosaic of self, you know. So, yeah, I agree. Yeah. So um, what are some of the real standout moments to you as far as this is where I want to get a little woo, okay. <laughs> just a little woo um, with any kind of uh, unusual audio um happenings things like that Ooh, i'm glad you asked yeah. <laughs> i'd love that stuff um so when i was a kid i had a term for them um because i would make i would make these cassette collages off the radio and also record stuff on top of it these kind of mutant things and i used to go to sleep at night listening to them like kind of meditating to my work in a way you know like uh, utilizing it as some sort of like dream cannon or something. And uh, I used to call them aminals um, because there were these unintentional like voices or, um, you know, if you want to call it electronic voice phenomenon or whatever, but I think it's, you know, magnetic atmospheric things that help trigger a pareidolia that, you know, I'm I'm listening to the subconscious through these kind of like, mistakes in the collage or things you know that are talking to me um and i called them aminals and uh you know that uh, purposely with uh, the misspelling of animal because i had no other term for it they sounded like animals but weren't you know what i mean mm -hmm. and i was a kid so i was like aminals um but wow that has stayed with me throughout the entire thing uh or entire practice of audiomancy or kind of these uh, processes of meditative physical and mental exercises in kind of creation um you know everything from being in a dark chamber with a speaker and a guitar and being lost in the sounds and to it like me actually having uh communion with things and uh not entirely sure if they're like you know ultra terrestrials or just my it un, it just triggered my dream you know kind of working the hypnagogia of like me actually making waking dreams with the music mm -hmm. and uh but there's been and this is the funny part i don't think i'll ever have an answer for it and every time i dig into it it gets um more preternatural in a way like there was one dimming session that i've written about i've made a video about it when i was uh 
you know, I was doing that old kind of form of audiomancy where I would shut myself away, kind of like a deprivation chamber, mm-hmm. getting lost in sound and meditation. And I noticed that I was kind of chanting this thing and it went, and I was recording it on cassette tape and it kept going and going. And I had this mental visual of these like beasts on a mountain that were like kind of dancing around and with yellow eyes and they were looking at me and it, you know, freaked me out, but I was super excited at the same time. Um, you know, and I, I wrote about it and then a week later I was flipping through a very archaic book, um, like an encyclopedia of sorts of, uh, theology and just flipping it, you know, nightly kind of, you know, reading sort of thing. And I saw there was a um, talk about a Zoroastrian mountain beast called the Druj, and it was D-R-U-J. <laughs> and I knew in my mind the Druja was D-R-U-J-A, mm-hmm. you know, and I saw Druj and it, it described these things as I had seen them, but I had not ever heard of that before. That's it was incredible. like this retro causal, like, provability of, of, you know, things. I don't know. But, yeah, that's just one example. And it does still happen a lot. There's many a cast of characters um, in the new working where I'm using the spirit box. Um, there's a group called Listening Post Alpha that I've been doing work with. And they take, they do magical workings with you know, communing with the spirit box and then they use the ALW cipher to uh, decode the spirit box's transmissions. So it brings another layer in. And of course, my anarchic sensibilities are, I'm going to put that in my audiomancy practice, you know, (laughs) what could go wrong? Exactly. Um, uh, But yeah, and, you know, through the transmissions that you could hear, it's called the prospector ritual. You can hear the spirit box in it. Um, and I've mixed it so like it, it, when it comes out, it comes in. And I was just listening to it in headphones, like playing drums, guitar, kind of being guided by it in a way, but not really talking to it, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, through the decoding, like it's it's gotten real spooky and uh, really fascinating. And that's it kind of helps my hypothesis of this idea it could be as something as simple as pareidolia, but it's also like this preternatural pareidolia where you're you are conversing with your subconscious in a way. But it also is like, what's the concept of a guardian angel or an age, a holy guardian angel if it's not kind of your supra self, like your right. most potentialized, you know, um, self? And so there's a lot of things in my recent workings that definitely help um ensnare both of those ideas so um yeah it's uh it's really <laughs> it's really fascinating, fascinating. <laughs> yeah it's yeah. got me thinking about uh like all of the the hauntology the hauntomancy the revisiting of the past and you know you're you're moving through all these different timelines in the same area of time it just makes me think of how things might be um, constantly overlapping for us and, and interdimensional in that sense. And mm-hmm. 
how it might be that our consciousness is giving us these feedback loops via these other beings, angels, yeah. demons, Tricksters. whatever it is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what, what were they called? The, the duhas? The, the druge. Ducha? The yeah. druge, yes. <laughs> Things like that. Yeah. It's just... Uh, I like to think of it too, and, you know, the way my mind works with it um, is that there's an imaginarium, right? Um, that where ideas are coming from and, you know, the collective unconscious uh, simply of, you know, all of these things we create, these thoughts kind of, you know, exist floating, whether they're nebulous to us or connected to other things. And I like to think that when you, something theological like that, where there's, you know, a deep belief and a deep kind of cherished concentration about things being real, they become real in a sense. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so dip into like it's archetypes, right? It's um, mm -hmm. you're kind of experimenting archetypal uh, vectors of humanity and storytelling and folklore. And there's, you know, they're heteronyms, which in the kind of linguistic sense means they're the same words or they're different words for the same thing. Yeah. You know, and um, yeah, my thing is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm logging what my words are basically but i think there's definite tether and and uh communion with other people their experiences their words for these these things that are probably universal but at the same time just like a beautiful human prospect of you know the imaginarium at large and our ability to do that so yeah Blowing me away. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I like to ask uh, if there's any people along the way that have had a real impact on you and the way that you create and just you as a being. Yeah. Um, it's funny. I was I took a long walk yesterday. Um, I had hurt my back recently and I've been trying to get back to my ambulatory kind of meditations. And I was thinking that maybe after all these years, maybe it's time for a teacher of sorts, you know? Maybe it's time to kind of uh, listen intentfully to uh, folks that are, you know, I don't know. I don't know how to explain it because uh, the way I'm illustrating it is that my entire life, there's been kind of no masters, no mentors, really. There's, I've been inspired um, and definitely subconsciously, like, um, you know, spiked by works of art and creation. And I've worked with a lot of people that I respect and talk to um, that I, I guess I could, could consider, you know, definite influences on me. Mm -hmm. um, but I've never kind of thought of it in the sense that when someone's like, you know, um, list your influences, like it's such a patchworking of so many things, both like known or people that I know and people that I've never met before, you know. Um, but when I was young, you know, I think my father was a big source of the continuing like spelunking into these big ideas and and metaphysics and whatnot because he 
when I was a kid, I grew up in the Southwest, mainly with my mother. Um, but I would see my father every couple of, or a few times a year as it was. And at the time he was living on a compound with, uh, Maryland, or he wasn't living on the compound, but we were there all the time. Um, mm -hmm. uh, Marilyn Ferguson's compound who wrote the Aquarian conspiracy. And, you know, I'd met Timothy Leary when I was young, mm -hmm. uh, Robert Anton Wilson, Robert Anton Wilson's still a big, um, cosmic trigger for me, but it's. <laughs> Um, but you know, so like in these abilities, like there was always this openness and it was such a contradiction to my desert upbringing, which was, you know, it's kind of like pseudo dogmatic, sometimes abusive, um, you know, not a place where I could have these thoughts or these, uh, conversations, um, because I was that kid that was always asking about that, you know, what mm -hmm. is God? Like, what do you mean? What's hell? Um, yeah. Later, you know, I'd find out that these are all kind of like signs and symptoms of a, uh, a mental diagnosis that I wouldn't be diagnosed with uh, properly until later in my 20s. And I think back then a lot of the reason why maybe I was kind of so aloof or I didn't have like a hero worship um, or mentorship was kind of maybe part and parcel to that. But I think a lot of it was I was just a, a sponge for so many things. I mean, like musically, um, you know, a, a huge inspiration. My young self was what went on up here in the Pacific Northwest, uh, specifically like Kill Rock Stars and this whole DIY punk ethos of k records and you know um yeah just do it yourself reckless abandon you know mm -hmm. um that kind of bled into i mean my love of comic books forever has been a big source of uh playing with these metaphysical ideas and you know works by like peter milligan and grant morrison and alan moore when i was young mm -hmm. um and then yeah they all kind of crossbred and I think it was when I got the Book of Lies, which was Disinfo, a Disinfo book, uh, which was a company that Richard Metzger started. It was like a media company that really cherished outsiderdom and would talk about all these things while like promoting these, you know, fantastic, crazy ideas. Um, I think the biggest, probably the most famous thing Disinfo ever did was that Grant Morrison um lecture he did it's all over the internet that was at a disinfocon where you know he comes out and he's like blasted to the moon and yells <laughs> magic is real you know <laughs> and of course like that was that had the punk rock ethos and it had the the deep kind of religiosity or like the anti-religiosity but also like the ponderance of these big things and then you know psychic tv came in to the way and Genesis Peoridge, but also like Tom Waits and Nick Cave and, you know, and mm -hmm. I just saw like the tethers through all of these things, um, you know, were pretty glaring to me. So, yeah, there's a huge, I mean, yeah, books and literature. I mean, the Beat Generation when I was a kid was like the 
holy grail of writing. Like you can write like this. <laughs> These sentences are so long. You know, like what is he talking about? <laughs> Run um, on for well, days. Because <laughs> that was my mind too. Yeah. I remember my earliest writings were very like stream of consciousness, uh, lax with like punctuation. You know, Hubert Selby Jr. was a big one. His book uh, Waiting Period uh, on his keyboard he was missing the apostrophe so there's a forward slash every time there should be an apostrophe and it makes you subconsciously think that it's meaning singular or plural you know what i mean like <laughs> meaning both and like right. that broke open my mind of you know how he was insistent of keeping that like it doesn't need to be edited it doesn't need to be fixed this is part and parcel to the art you know or to how it's translated in a way and so yeah there's just there's a a huge pantheon of things that you know i still consider very, very uh influential in my childhood still to now you know i think there's very few things that i i cringe at you know <laughs> that i <laughs> enjoyed when i was young you know but, well, that's a beautiful thing that you can embrace yeah. those things and other people just completely try to separate themselves from. Yeah. They try to just divorce themselves from anything that they find that is like, uh, you know, embarrassing or whatever. Mm -hmm. But really, it's just all part of the big picture of what we become. I mean, literally everyone I just mentioned works in like all the mediums everyone i just mentioned uh is a writer a musician an actor in like tom waits's case you know uh or nick cave's case um you know they crispin glover who's who's a big yeah, inspiration him. for me yeah <laughs> i love him so much yeah he he was huge in my youth and i still rather enjoy him but he's one of those people where i remember when i was a kid in like the early 2000s and finding CrispinHellionGlover.com and it's like you know he made an album and he's written these books one of the books is a cut up another is like a narrative and you know these are all people that are like tapping into this rich registry of different ways to commune with the same ideas and like the people I look to are the ones that do it all they're not kind of just directioned in you know some sort of fashion or trying to even perfect one sort of like language it's they're going through whatever motivates them to you know express something within them so yeah that's the one thing i think everyone that inspires <clears throat> excuse me inspires me shares is that they they are multifaceted and yeah i love that i really appreciate that too because i mm -hmm. feel like yeah this... you're one of them <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> in this world where, you know, they, they try to force us to do one thing and mm -hmm. be one thing, keep one label. So, yeah, I have a big appreciation for that. And it makes me think about the different names that you go by mm -hmm. for your projects. And um, yeah. So, There's a freedom in that. I just don't want, I want them to kind of stand on their own kind of prism, right? Like, I could put everything under Keats Ross, but there's so much baggage that comes with that. And there's, you know, there's so much, um, yeah, there's so much weight with just that name, you know, and 
how it's charged and it's familial and all of these things. And it's like, yeah, there's just a freedom in, you know, the heteronyms or the, you know, different persona or whatever. You know, I know that uh, folks have a hard time keeping track of all of them. And I used to struggle with that. Like, oh, it's got another project, <laughs> you know, but like the new project isn't dissimilar like the new rebel Roz thing that i'm working on isn't dissimilar from dakota slim in that it's me doing everything it's just a different viewpoint because these characters themselves become real and then have limitations like dakota slim wouldn't do this sort of thing you know what i mean or mm-hmm. like wouldn't write a song like this or they they become limiting in it of themselves and um i'm still working on the death of dakota slim because his story is you know it's it's been aching for a while just i you know i have this big fiction that i've always been working on about like letting releasing him you know and letting that go so yeah they become these what starts as a freedom you know can be chained to limitations or how you kind of view what this person is you know they're but they're really just characters, all characters mm-hmm. of the self. They're just masks. Like exactly. we were talking about yep. That's in the what beginning. I yeah. I really, I love that actually, because it reminds me of how, I mean, this is at least how I feel about things here, that, that we are some other greater spirit, soul, other larger being out there somewhere. Maybe we're in here. I don't really know, but it does seem like we choose these different vessels to experience things through. And so it just makes a lot of sense to me that you kind of divvy it up that way to use these different characters to express different facets and aspects of the greater self. Yeah. Um, you know, Mitch Horowitz, when I started Pragmagic, um, I had him on early on and that was when i think you have a similar story when people started to be out front about their like uh their woo woo or whatever you know i think the term was coming out of the broom closet right <laughs> yeah but i had been under rebel Roz about all this stuff beforehand and i you know i've had m- many people tell me professionally or uh, you know as an advisor of some sorts unwanted many of the time but you know don't put your name on this stuff like it'll limit your possibilities and so there was a time where you know Horowitz had mentioned like you got to put it under your name it gives it that much more weight to talk about all these things and have like that uh, fearlessness of putting your name on these things and so I, I did that and I did it all, but now I'm starting to understand it's also through the workings of like Haunt Manual that I am, um, you know, coming back to there's a way to do both. There's a way to like, you know, kind of merge it all. And it's just about discernment and uh, getting close with that. So, yeah. I lost you for a minute there. <laughs> oh, yeah, no worries. We had a little blackout, but it, it came back. Um, yes. So. What I was thinking about was the live performance. I'm I'm switching gears a little bit here. Yeah. 
what do you do you prefer to just really hunker down and spend a lot of time in in your studio just really playing around with things or do you like more of a live performance situation um i guess the short answer is i do like both i think that i found another way to do both which is these uh workings for haunt manual are all streamed so it is live improvised music that i'm mm -hmm. i'm making but it's available to an audience if they want to view it in real time um it's unedited so it is capturing a live performance but there is a part of me yeah that um misses kind of you know the the performance aspect of it but there was also a big part of me that hated the avenues of which a lot of us were left to utilize which was you know kind of the bar scene or uh you know the lugging of equipment and playing to <laughs> exactly. uninterested people and um especially as a solo person that you know does a lot of things it's just yeah it started to become a reward versus you know um function thing but i'm getting back to it now because uh doing these improvised workings live and streamed where you know i'm also manipulating the video aspect of it so it's another way to do everything in a sense or work with everything but now i'm getting into the inspiration of how to do that live and uh figuring out the ways of doing that and what's funny is through the haunt manual like i was telling you that first working i was thrust back in portland and all those 2017 things like mm -hmm. came full throttle um it allowed me to escape that loop and go into um kind of a career that went back to live and events and event technology and so that's what i've been doing uh mostly for a living now and that has opened a whole new world and facet of just how uh wonderful the communion of technology and you know human interaction and all of mm -hmm. these things can be so i'm listening to the synchronicities of it and going you know um you know there, there has there's going to be a time when i've set it up in a way that i can do what i was doing on those streams live and have it be kind of a visceral experience and not just a kind of ho-hum boring band or <laughs> you know um and again i'm jaded because my background was you know a, one of the many things i did was a live sound engineer so i've seen it all folks you know over and over and over <laughs> again um so that that was that was why i kind of stopped was it stopped becoming fun for me and it stopped becoming experimental in a way uh -huh. and it stopped it, it stopped becoming theatrical in a way like i really missed that uh almost pretension you know of folks in <laughs> in mass or like it, it creating this visceral like theater with the music and so yeah now i'm starting to understand how to do it and so i'm moving back that way That's that is exciting. to say in october we will be doing like a short west coast tour um uh me and my partner mary who's we've been working on her album 
And so we are planning to do that. And I am looking forward to that, to, you know, the other side of that, which is just a very sometimes acoustic, but kind of very uh, moody, kind of cinematic, quiet and loud and the uh, the ability to use less and not go so mm-hmm. crazy with the event stuff. So, again, I like both. Um, but. Yeah, it's been a while. The pandemic really, you know, shook it all to its core. Yeah. Funny enough, the, uh, I played a show March 13th, uh, Friday the 13th, at a venue I was working at in Denver as the booker and the sound person. And it was that day that uh, we knew the national emergency was coming, so the venue shut down the next day. So that was my last live performance throughout the pandemic. And then I played up here when we moved to Seattle. I played a show, and that was nice. But uh, I definitely want to get back into it and like figure things out and how to make it fun and interesting. And fun is loose. I mean, fun for me, right? It could be. <laughs> it could yeah, well. be. Uh, you know, it could be. I don't know. Abrasive or boring or whatever to somebody else, but I definitely need to enjoy it to to do it to. Uh, yeah, I think that's... No, it's good to have that live in-person interaction with people too. I'm sure that it has a totally different quality in feeling than just uh, even even just the live streams. I mean, even though they are live and people are interacting in real time, I feel like the energy must be different still. It is. Um, it's extremely different. There, it, the pros of that though are there's more freedom for me not being on stage, right? Or or in front of people. Like, I just mean internally. Like, there's mechanisms, even this. Like, I don't know if you heard my voice in the beginning. It was warbly because I have Mm -hmm. interpersonal, like, you know, mental disfluency things or social awkwardness or nervousness. I have You know, and so the ability (laughs) to, you know, not have that, in this space and to do it live, you know, has been really nice. But at the same time, yeah, it's absolutely missing like a connective tissue of people in in just in the room, like an electricity of it or, you know what I mean? It can, you can get too comfortable maybe and it allows for, yeah, just the, just the other souls that are in the room to right. kind of help feed into it. So. Yeah, I agree that that is definitely something that has been missing. So hopefully we'll get that back. Yeah, I think you will for sure. And that's great. You're going to do the tour. And I like how you were talking about um, using less to get by with, because I I think that really creates a lot of uh, improvisation, which can Mm -hmm. birth amazing new things. You just never know. Yeah, absolutely. And then kind of getting to the source of that you know um kind of trusting the way i commune with an instrument instead of like drowning it in a bunch of other things or you know is yeah has been really nice and that's been something that's been coming up a lot lately too was it's always kind of i felt limited or embarrassed by what i call my cripple picking style of guitar playing (laughs) (laughs) it's very um 
yeah, it's very unique, but at the same time, it can be very like limiting. And um, to get back to using less, not like hiding it in, in with you know crazy drums or all these all these things like live, and just to allow that kind of uniqueness to come through, just the physical action, you know, I think is really beautiful. And folks do it far better than I could ever, you know. Um, so it'd be nice to get to a point where it's just comfortable to, you know, break out the guitar in a room mm -hmm. and play in front of people. But after almost 20 years of playing live, it's it's still, you know, it's still a roller coaster. Um, yeah. And I'm still yeah. hard on myself, too. I don't think I've ever came out of a show and went, that was awesome. High fives <laughs> all around, you know? Yeah, I do know. <laughs> I do know how that feels. Because, um, yeah, I've got that really critical thing going on, too. Well, I was going to say, it's I, the thing I really love about you and your work is how you always bring other people into the fold. You do a lot of collaborations with other people and you've got the We the Hollowed project and um, what is sort of the, what do you get out of that the most, I think, is what I'm trying to get out here. Um, yeah, uh, this could kind of cycle back to about inspirations, but, uh, you know, Eric J. Millar, who Mm -hmm. has been kind of my like visual art partner and all things we the hollowed and pragmatic and all of that you know that's we the hollowed really kind of distills down to just us two um we've tried you know everything uh the one thing that's always been about we the hollowed is that it is like an open source kind of artistic collective you know you come in, you can leave whenever. There's no, you know, initiatory right or some kind of thing. It's like if, you, if you're in a place where you think that we could be of service to utilize the tools that we have, which is the blog or the publishing or the, you know, the uh, distribution, digital distribution of music or whatever it is, and you enjoy communing with us in that way, then, you know, we're here for it. Um, we want that but there's never been like a recruitment or a, you know kind of a people have come and gone like throughout since the beginning and it started uh with a monthly salon like a live variety show that i did in portland where i would do interviews live and then there would be music um live drawing all of that so it comes from a very physical space and a very like community driven thing mm -hmm. and then just through all of my you know trials or travels even like it bridged more into this spot where you know we're working with scottish artists or you know working with australian ones or it's it, it became more of an international thing and mm -hmm. it became tethered to the internet and yeah, what we always come back down to, though, is that it's really a funnel of like we're always trying to find what I call the tethers, which are like these constants between all of these disparate works of art that we celebrate and enjoy and share. Um, there's no like real aesthetic. There's no 
one mode of thinking. It's just that uh, essentially the folks that have, you know, worked with We The Hollowed or what we do with We The Hollowed has been, the connective tissue has been, you know, kind of metaphysically minded artistic process. And you could fill in the blank with anything <laughs> when it comes to that. Um, yeah, exactly. And it's been, you know, it's been an experiment. It's been a successful one. It's been, you know, it's had dry spells where it's been hard for me to weather um, expectations or, you know, keep up with the blog. You know, I'm like a de facto editor of, of this blog and, you know, we're putting out books. And so there's a lot of jobs and a lot of hats with it. So me and Eric or Eric and I right now are really excited about just getting back down to brass tacks and having it funnel as a medium for all the things that we do uh, disparately, but also kind of our connective things together too. And then allowing folks that, you know, want to participate too. But uh, I think Haunt Manual itself, when it's printed and it'll be released uh, through We The Hollowed, We The Hollowed Press, will be a kind of backdoor uh, of like the tenets of We The Hollowed. I think it contains within it kind of the the oeuvre of what we try to do, uh, you know, as a community, as an open source community, as a mm -hmm. partnership, as a solo artist. So, yeah, it's uh, it's been super bright and brilliant. And we've, you know, I think the most stuff that I'm proud of are Eric's stuff. He's a huge inspiration to me. Um, you know, we've released, he's made these anarchic oracular devices, very like punk rock kind of anti-tarot bibliomantic, mm. you know, very cool kind of things. Yeah. But um, I'm sorry, the glare. But <laughs> yeah, um, you know, we've released a bunch of books of his books and there's a lot of philosophical writings in there, just like really beautiful tethered artistic process, you know, to deep thinking and you know, uh, we come together once a year for what we call the Haunt Quinox, which is a huge live stream, which you were on last year. Um, yes. A big live stream and basically just a, it's like what the We The Hollowed uh, salons used to be, but now once a year and kind of a marathon where we share uh, everything that all of us have been working on, discuss it. Um, so that happens usually around March 20th of every year. And we also, the last big thing I did was create an audio sigil where, you know, folks, friends like our friend Nish, um, lots of people connected with Carl Abrahamson, Vanessa Sinclair, uh, Derek Hunter, a lot of creatives and, and different mediums came together to put to together an audio sigil a collective audio sigil and what i did was i tethered it all and mastered and mixed it into this like eternal return beautiful intentional collective thing and i made a video for it all um every track having a different video or motif that cycles in so it was this big intentional working uh that we all came together to do so that's what I focus more about We The Hollowed is like these bursts, uh, these yearly bursts of these big collective works. And then mm -hmm. there's the me and Eric 
just releasing, um, you know, whatever we fancy, but also like getting back to printed press and getting back to, you know, material um, media and print media is something we're really big into. You know, we've done a zine that was print media, a big one. Now it's on Amazon. Doesn't wow. hit as hard, right? <laughs> um, you know, everyone can get Eric stuff. Uh, Eric J. Millar. All of the We the Hollow books are on Amazon, so they're affordable. Anyone can get them. But we also do like, you know, short runs of really rare hardbacks and beautiful artist editions uh, and. So, yeah, it's become this vehicle for communion with other artists. But at the same time, it's been, you know, this. Uh, yeah, this like way to share in tethers, but also, you know, celebrate the individual individualistic and disparate parts of, you know, all of us. So, yeah, that's 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 been a great um, aspect of my life. Uh, because it's given me a vehicle to really connect with uh, other artists and musicians from all over the world and writers and all sorts of stuff. So, yeah, well, it's I also, can see. oh, sorry, I was just going to say it also hosts the Pragmagic podcast. So that's part of it. The yeah, podcast was birthed from those live salons of me interviewing people. And now it's like, you know, it's hosted under We the Hollowed, but. It's it's called Pragmagic, but it's all connected, you know. So. Well, I can see where you um. You you, I think it's funny because before you mentioned how. You weren't really thinking about other people in your process, <laughs> and yet <laughs> you have this dichotomy of. Uh, well, in my personal price praxis, but yeah, I guess that overall, like process of what I do artistically does uh, correlate to other people or being of service almost to other people's art. But when it comes to my own, you know, stuff, Eric is the one that I go to for visual things and visual art, or sometimes I'll just do it all. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's never somebody or it's rarely somebody comes into the actual like artwork that I'm doing and you know is part of the process but you're right like uh it is still connected like the the macro of the entire thing is connected right. with other the big yeah. collective yeah and <clears throat> probably whatever kind of uh conscious or subconscious um influences and energies that flow into that yeah I think it just became, you know, what's the Groucho Marx? Like, wouldn't trust anyone that would have me or any uh, club that would have me for a member. It That was kind of the basis for it was that we were all, or I, I was, you know, such an outsider artist or I felt outside that it helped, you know, me build a community of other kind of outsider artists and, and things to, you know, uh, work together with but also really just share everybody's disparate kind of individualistic arts 
But it very much is of that. That was the kernel that started it was that, well, if no one's going to have me, I'll make my own. You know? <laughs> it's the kind Island of, of the Misfits concept. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. I love that so much. Yeah. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah, it's been really been interesting. I, I'm forever trying to find how to tend to everything. So, you know, yeah. everything comes in like these big bright spurts and punches and kicks and then you know i'll be tinkering away at something and there'll be a little bit of a dry spell publicly but everything's being kind of tended to or trying to figure out how to orchestrate almost like a composer like all of these different facets mm -hmm. you know so do yeah you, do you feel like you put a lot of pressure on yourself to get these things done i do yeah i've been better about it recently the podcast is the one that has taken kind of the most hit because my focus has just been so strongly with haunt manual and these other workings and you know i had made the podcast become something more than just a interview thing it became kind of an audio you know, it was always supposed to be like an audio grimoire of my of my stuff and stuff that I'm interested in. But it became this like audio chasm of experimentation and experimental. And then it took a lot of every episode took a lot of editing and it's very, you know, there's a lot of sinews in it. And so the process of itself became so big that um, I've had to be nice to myself about when I'm able to release another episode or when i'm able to you know publicly put that out um and it's just one of those things i always try to say that uh you know i haven't gone anywhere if you just listen to the podcast you know unfortunately through this project this big project that i'm doing you're gonna hear from me less but if you go here mm -hmm. you'll hear from me more so i'm always hard of myself there was definitely uh like a feeling of self-sabotage, I think, um, mm -hmm. with the podcast, because I just got, I got so bored with the format. And uh, especially with the, like, it was always not supposed to be just a magic thing. Um, there was the pragmatic part of it too, right? The pragmatic. So I interviewed, you know, um, musicians and artists that, you know, didn't truly correlate to those deep kind of occultnik ideas. And when it became that there was just so much of it getting lost in the sea of like, you know, I guess the best way to put it is it, the episodes come out when I'm inspired to talk to somebody or somebody's stuff inspires me. That's when I contact them like, hey, I would love, <laughs> you know, I never treated it as a routinized, you know, kind of episodic venture like i even stopped numbering them because it was just too limiting like every everyone should kind of stand on its own or and it's a documentation of my process through podcasting in general like you can hear from the very beginning mm -hmm. me getting used to the concept and to what it is now which is just nuts and nowhere near what it used to be i'm having a lot of fun with it and characters and you know um yeah, and it's just, it's become a great outlet. The 
because I had to find that for myself. It's, you know, I wasn't listening. I don't, I don't really listen to, um, like a cult podcast or I don't listen to, you know, um, that kind of schema or that world anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, so much. So it was me trying to get inspired by, let's get into the pragmatic side, like the actual art process. And, yeah. You know, I'd be lying if I said, if I, if I just kept talking to people and wasn't showing what I was doing, like how it was, you know, kind of intertwining, like there's that aspect of myself. It's like, I don't want to talk about it so much anymore. Like, just listen Do right it. or yeah <laughs> yeah just or just watch it like here here it is an actual play like putting my money where my mouth is about all these concepts here's you know here's how i utilize it here's how i use it to enrich my life here's how i use it to enhance and inspire you know creativity and i think once the podcast started feeling like i needed to you know get big names or talk to people I didn't necessarily want to talk to or use it as like a promotional tool for certain things. That's it lost my way. And so now I'm back on it as just like this rebirth of like a very spirit adventure, you know, with it. But, you know, there was a, a self-sabotaging, like it was, you know, it gets great listenership and there's a good community with it. But I think there was a part of me that was like, you know, wanted to set it on fire because I'm just not, that's something I'm trying to learn to be better with is, uh, yeah, it's kind of success, I guess, in, in general, or, you right. know, people's <laughs> expectations of, of me, um, or your perceived, or my uh, perceived, yeah, expectations exactly. from other people. Mostly, yeah. 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 Definitely mostly perceived. Um, <laughs> I have the same issue. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, all of the mediums should come from like a genuine need to do it, you know, and you can tell you can you can tell that with people's, you know, whether podcasts or music or you can tell it's just coming out of them. They need to they need to, you know, it's coming from you like JJ, you needed to really start to document and catalog like the crazy people that you know, like the brilliant, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, other than me, but I mean, just like your long and storied, like beautiful tethers to all the art world and all of these things and bringing them all together, you know, and you can tell when people need to do it and you can tell when people are doing it for some other reason. And yeah, I just never wanted that other reason. So I started to, bail on it a little bit but then i found it again you know <laughs> i'm with you there even yeah. even for this i don't like to call this a podcast i don't right. feel like it is i just feel like it's two creative people just shooting the shit <laughs> yeah no and i agree <laughs> you know, with and, podcast has become limiting as a term yeah you know because yeah absolutely like uh what i've been doing with prag magic I would call it like an audio stream or something. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But it's produced, so stream is, has baggage. Um, <laughs> because like some episodes, you'll just get like an entire audiomancy working. And I won't say anything. It'll just be this barrage of like sonic chaos, you know? <laughs> like <laughs> the next episode will be something completely different or, 
it's just it goes back to show like i reserve the right to do this however the fuck i want right. you know what i mean so yeah yeah that's the beauty of not putting yourself in a box with all these different words and labels that we feel the need to put on ourselves and all i think that that's viable. pressure mm -hmm. i think that's viable i get into a lot of semantic arguments about but it is a podcast or what you're doing <laughs> is chaos magic it's like okay maybe to you if that helps you like tether or resolve like what you're listening to or what i'm doing right but i am not going to call it something i don't think it is and you know i think there needs to be more lax kind of understanding from listenership or viewership about maybe even what the medium is and what we are conventions of thinking what a podcast is or what you know a live stream is or you know, there's all these ways to break those conventions and it sucks when it gets roped into, mm -hmm. you know, those kind of chasms of labeling, which seems so popular right now. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I notice, um, well, even for myself, I felt like trying to, uh, I, I wanted to have some kind of template. I wanted this to be about art. And then I, then I had to ask myself, well, what are the confines of art? Like, what are, you know, there's, there's just so many different kinds of art. So how do I just put a boundary up? Where is the end of the beginning of, mm -hmm. of the subject matter and the topics and all that? So it's, it's getting me to think, too, even as an artist and creative people. And I feel like I have an open mind it's opening my mind even further just to have different people um, contacting me that aren't necessarily the stereotypical artist, whether that be a visual artist, a musician, a writer. Um, mm -hmm. That's why I ended up putting creative because I feel like the lines bleed and it's not great to put a label on everything. Yeah, and I think it's not great to limit, you know, the craft really to just the mediums of which are like long storied, like music or, or writing. Um, you know, I think how a person lives their life is an art form and exactly. I think is, is a magic in and of itself, you know, as an archaic sort of kind of experience, you know, with the other is, you know, it, it doesn't, it can be as big as that. It can be as small as you know, how somebody organizes their day, like uh, a day, a div I used to call it a divergent magic. It's kind of a neurodivergent, like idea to be pragmatic about stuff is, you know, to kind of think of the ritual of a day and, you know, tending to it. And, and there's, you know, offerings of health with, you know, uh, vitamins or, you know, exercise. There's, you know, offerings to it's it's really just kind of treating yourself like a, a temple in a way. And I think people are so creative in those aspects that they slip through the cracks because, you know, they don't have a website or, you know, they they uh, don't have a, you know, showing at a gallery or playing a live show or something. I think there's too many limiting factors about what is, you know, art and what we can and what we consider successful art and what we consider you know uh someone as a true artist which you know i have my own definition 
about that. Everybody should, but at the same time, everybody should know that that doesn't mean someone's not an artist or, you know, how they conceive of art or, yeah, it's, uh, that's kind of the most beautiful, simplistic, like outline for, you know, this venture ever is just, you know, how do I, you know, and all the people talk and, you know, feed into that journey for you and your art and all the stuff that you do. So if it's breaking open the head, then you're doing it right. You know, (laughs) if it's, if it's shocking and if it's also, you know, showing you more bounds outside of the confines, then like you're doing the work, you're doing the good work. Right. So, yeah. Yes. (laughs) So, um, we're getting, we're rounding out here in the time, but, um, I just wanted to get your thoughts on like any, anybody who's kind of young and starting out in their craft. Mm. Um, do you have any advice to anybody? Well, it's kind of a tough. Mm. Uh, I, I know this, I think, I think this is more kind of uh, something that I've been noticing uh, friends of mine that are at that age that are young um, or maybe um kind of a treatise on like pop culture as we know it or like what life is like right now and my big thing is to say take risks fail get out of the computer you know um get back into like the somatic uh you know put yourself in places and not have an itinerary put yourself in strange places and not you know have a destination um I think we're we're in a culture now where it's so easy to be rewarded, but it's also easy to uh, kind of just live in this digital ether and like having that immediate kind of gratification of communion and reward. And I can definitely see it going too much in that direction. Mm-hmm. And there should be it should be a tool. It shouldn't be the praxis itself. You know what I mean? It shouldn't be, it should be a tool to commune. It shouldn't be considered the only way of communion with other people and other beingness in life. I mean, again, with the labels, like it's so easy to find, you know, these, I hate to use the term echo chambers, but I I mean it quite literally, you know, like Mm -hmm. these, these places because of identifying and trying to put a label on how you feel and, you know, trying to find the others become super simple because it's all cataloged and filed now, you know, on the other net. Um, <laughs> but like I would say, yeah, it's it's keeping you, you know, from truly like finding a disparate path or an archaic and original kind of way if you're shielding yourself from people you wouldn't normally, you know, be around. You know, gone are the days where, you know, you'd go to the neighborhood bar because it was there and you'd talk to people that, you know, weren't in a subculture because you were just communing with the mailman or the, you know, like (laughs) just the people living their lives. And, you know, I think uh, that would be my big thing. And, you know, I do mean almost like I'm thinking of a few people I know and you're never going to be ready like 
if you don't want to make mistakes and you're waiting to the day where you can corner you know corner it all up and then leap it's already passed you by like it's 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 leaving it's forever leaving so i would say yeah be be okay to fail and document the failure because i think that's another aspect that's missing with a lot of artists and in this uh culture right now is everyone the hustle culture and how successful they are and what they're getting in rewards and you know that's just uh it's just false and it's uh i think true connection is made through failure and i think true connection is made through like the missives and the missteps and the human error that we have right you know yeah um, it's, uh all yeah. all of the it just everyone seems to want to present this perfect package to the outside world like all of these face app filters is making me think mm -hmm. of there's no um celebration of the failure and and the process and how you you arrive at a certain place that you might feel successful or whatever yeah and i would just say yeah kind of redefine what good enough means because it's not good enough for you <laughs> right now you know and i think that's a big thing was you know people just sit on they sit idle and um there's so many great thinkers that you know, I'm connected with and, and just brilliant humans that, you know, they just need the push to like, you know, really, yeah, just, I don't know, to find their avenue instead of, uh, you know, kind of waiting for the right moments. And I think maybe essentially there isn't such a thing as a right moment. Right. You know, so. I've yeah. seen so many people wait for that right moment and they... Mm -hmm. <clears throat> excuse me <laughs> excuse me oh my gosh they never get there and it does pass right. them by it's always leaving it is and you're right about that yeah and i think study about what is the right moment and i think a lot of people will find it's their idea of failure is what the expectation of others or what other people consider and i think once you kind of distill it down to that and realize like, oh, that doesn't essentially matter, at least not to the right people, you know, then what's holding you back? Is it discomfort? Well, aging is discomfort, you know. <laughs> <laughs> we are decaying meat suits, you know, That's you better right. get it in, <laughs> you know. So, yeah, I'd say a big thing for me was, um, yeah, and like whatever failure you go through, like, you know, um, there's retribution, there is redemption, and it's, but you got to get to the other side first. And I think exactly. that that was a big thing was, you know, you can't, you can't just idle in within, you know, any kind of construct of, of a uh, stagnant or static or safe, you know, mm -hmm. no such thing. Everything's forever moving. Everything's forever permeating and changing at the same time. So you know yeah that's that's what i would say bravo great advice <laughs> watch everyone <laughs> that takes it is gonna blow up half of the world but you know <laughs> some things need to burn that's so right it's true you know? so but yeah i just i've never considered it like i've never considered that question before and that's definitely the first thing that came to mind um 
because it is something that has been haunting me lately just about kind of the digital ether and how we all connect and you know it that's all great and fine but you gotta pump up the other one too you know you gotta <laughs> if, if, if this isn't enriching your life or like your somatic temporary kind of presence in this universe like then it's not beneficial and you know what i mean and if it is if it's only that then it's not beneficial it's like you know there's yeah. gotta be that good balance i think yeah. always neither either or yeah the contradiction that third mind it all comes That's back right. yeah. <laughs> uh, well thank you so much for coming on with me today and dealing with all the weird tech stuff and yeah. just um i know you're still healing up so i just appreciate you sitting with me for a while and sharing with everyone yeah, no. about yourself thank you you make it awfully easy to speak about any of this stuff with ease um yeah i really appreciate it and you know love you very much and thank you for having me um yeah there often when i'm a guest on something it never feels as fluid or i'm as comfortable so it takes a jj (laughs) for the kind words yeah (laughs) all right well so we'll put all your links um i'm gonna do a little blog write-up and also put the links on the video when i put it out sometime this week so cool yeah let me know what you need and i'll send you all the links when it's done sounds good you know where to find me i do (laughs) all right